Remember halogen bulbs? It was like uh, this these long thin glass uh, like light bulbs, but it used some used this thing called a halogen. And um, I only ever had them in these those torch air lamps, those sort of floor lamps that sort of are pointing the light at the ceiling, right? That that sort of flat cone at the top. Am I describing it properly? Um, yeah. So you had these halogen bulbs. And there are all these warnings when you get it. You cannot touch. Do not touch the halogen bulbs. Wear cotton gloves. Who, who, who is these cotton gloves? You have to wear these like special cotton gloves to touch, to install your, uh, I guess, I guess I just use like paper towels. I don't know. Like you have to, you, you can't touch the bulb because it burns so incredibly hot, right? If you touch the bulb, you know, you'll leave like a fingerprint, you know, like skin oil or whatever. And that could cause uneven heating on the surface of the halogen bulb and cause it to explode if you touch it. <laughs> how did this ever? How did this ever get in, in, into the consumer's hands? Halogen bulbs, right? If you touch it, it'll explode. Okay, and then it, it was so hot. I guess because it's at the top of the lamp. It, I, I, is it like heating your room? I remember. I was so scared if my cats ever knocked it over, they would get burned. What was up with these halogen bulbs? There, there, there were all these weird light bulb formats before the LEDs took over, and they, 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 they run pretty cool, you know, and they, they last for a long time, and you hardly have to change them. This is the one thing like this only started like the like the, the really good LED bulbs really is only what the past ten fifteen years before they had all these weird formats like this little mini uh, cl- uh, fluorescent lights that were in this weird it was the shape of a light bulb but it was like this like uh, spiral of fragile fluorescent tubing that was made of glass remember that whole thing that was the, those were like the worst light bulbs ever because i had a few of those and those like burnt out after like a month and they're like oh do not put it in the garbage it cannot be put in the garbage you cannot be recycled it's full of toxic chemicals you have to take it to a special recycling center like what whatever happened to like simple light bulbs you just screw it in it'll last for a while then it'll like at some point it'll like go Remember the old uh, incandescent bulbs, which are now apparent, apparently illegal. It's at least some types of incandescent bulbs are now, I mean, yeah, are now illegal. I guess because they use so much power compared to LEDs. But uh, yeah, I wonder where to have, whatever happened to those. Because I do have a torch air lamp, but I don't think it's, I don't even know what kind of bulb is in there. But but I wonder, like, I, I didn't research it, but I wonder about this whole <laughs> the history of the halogen bulb, the most dangerous light bulb ever. It's like wild, man. Anyway, good morning. Yes, uh, it's Tuesday, and uh, yeah. So you know, the last couple episodes, I've been talking about my web hosting issues, right? And I think things have been somewhat resolved now. It's it was a tough road. Uh, last I I think the last time I spoke to you, I had purchased the incredibly expensive VPS or virtual private server, and. Uh, I thought everything was fixed, but then it turns out they hadn't. The transfer had failed because of a uh, an incorrect directory size reading. Oh my god, these technical issues are so maddening. So anyway, what happened was finally, like the next day, I wrote them to support. I'm like, hey, just following up on this because I I asked them if they I I wrote them and they're like, yes, we have to manually transfer the files because there's this error. I'm like, oh great. So I wrote them, I'm like, hey, you know, how, how long might this take, you know, to get on the new server? And they wrote back pretty quickly. Uh, it's happening as we speak, but you have so many files, it could take a while. Okay. 
So I, I, I eventually got the email that everything had transferred over. And I was like crossing my fingers. Uh-oh, now what? And everything worked. Everything was good. It was amazing. So everything was working. Everything was set up as it was. And um, wow, I had already kind of, uh, you know, they had sort of gutted that, uh, the Ramplers section. And I repopulated it thinking it was on the new server with just the last two years of files to try to keep it under a certain amount because initially I got the virtual private server that was 240 gigabytes, but just massively expensive per month. Like this is probably not sustainable in the long run, but this is just sort of a stopgap measure to get things back back running. Uh, because uh, if I had left things as they were, uh, no one besides me would have been able to post on the site. And that's been sort of a very important part of the site, obviously. So I started off with the 240 and I had about like 190, I think, on there. So I... Uh, download. I bought a hard drive. I downloaded the entirety of the server onto the hard drive, and then I used Windirstat, W-I-N-D-I-R-S-T-A-T, a great program on Windows to analyze the disk space. So I spent all day. I think it was like Saturday. I spent I spent all day like going through directory by directory and, and deleting all of the older stuff. There was so much junk on there, and you know I think you know with this new reality because what had happened was somehow. I was a customer for so long from this dream host that they were sort of allowing me to keep way too much data on the unlimited service, but it's so cheap. I, I, I went over this over and over again. They say it's unlimited, but it's really not unlimited. And it's just, it's so maddening because there's no rules except this vague rule. You cannot keep data on your site. That's purely data, this and that, whatever. So I, I, I it was good up until two years ago when they like deleted one of my folders and I had a whole back and forth with them. Oh, yeah, you can keep a year of data, this and that. And then they just deleted a mass amount of data. They're like, oh, yeah, sorry, there's nothing we can do. You're, this is prohibited data on the site. Yeah, but it's not been prohibited for the past 20 years. I've been on that service for almost 20 years. This is the kind of crap I'm dealing with, you know. But I can't really complain because I've been having huge amounts of storage available for like $8 a month, whatever it was. Anyway, that those days are past. So, uh, anyway... Um, I started to have to really, I really wanted to get down to the 120, which is the next step down, which is like $70 a month, which again, it's, it's, I suppose if I prepay, it'll be like $46 a month. If I prepay for three years, listen, just to keep the site going, I have to do all this stuff. So I deleted enough stuff. I got down to about 90 gigabytes and it was about the past year, year and a half of stuff. So, you know, now on this site, everything on the website, onsug.com. And also the overnightscape.com is going to stay the same, except that, right, the shows from a year or two ago are going to stop playing on the site, but they're all in the archive. Now, of course, I could potentially relink all of those posts back to the um, Internet Archive uh, files. I don't know if I, I don't know, I mean, that's obviously a lot of work. Maybe I'll do that. And if I, I mean, I, I suppose if I had done that, with everything. I don't know. This is a whole thing. But anyway, everything's back to working. It's quite a bit more expensive and just we're going to have I'm going to have to keep watching the data now that I know I have 120 gigs. It's because the next that's 240 was like twice as much, you know. Anyway, now it's somewhat under control and I think that the inconvenience of having to go to the archive to listen to much older shows is perhaps not a big deal. Um so that's why I'm saying it's somewhat resolved. Uh, 
again, we got past the crisis. Things are back up and running. And I don't know how much... Obviously, it'd be nice if all the older shows played, but, you know, I think that I always viewed the website as, you know, a, a step towards the ultimate goal, which is producing um, a digital object that contains all the shows in the form of the book. I've talked about this a lot. And um, that brings us to, you know... So anyway, the website is is a temporary thing until the f- the next form of Onslaught Radio can be formed. Talking about the book, this is the next crisis. I, I resolved one crisis, and now we get to another crisis. Why, why are there all these crises? This is a time of crise, crises or crises, okay? Listen, uh, this one is pretty – it's been really aggravating. And all day yesterday, which was President's Day, I had off, I was struggling with this issue because um, the book files. You know, I just recently created the book on Zug Radio, right? And, and – uh, I, I was so happy with the way the book came out. I used a program called Affinity Publisher to create it. And this is sort of an alternative to Adobe uh, InDesign uh, for a page layout program. And it, it was it's a really decent program, far cheaper than InDesign. It doesn't have a monthly fee. But as I was using it over the last year, it, 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 had, it was crashing all the time. The, the program would just crash and freeze. All these problems... Somehow I got through it and finished the book. So that was at the end of December. It's now uh, whatever. It's 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 February now, past the mid- middle of February, twenty twenty four. And uh, I, I I updated the the Affinity Publisher to the next version. I opened my files and it just continues to crash constantly. I can't do anything. If I try to do anything, it crashes. I go on their on their forums. A lot of other people have the same issues. It's so unstable now. You can hardly even use it. You know, and the other issue is, you know, I, I I don't like having all of this text in this completely proprietary format. I'd like to export the text. And I'm thinking I need to kind of unfortunately abandon this software because it is so incredibly unstable. It's unusable. I don't want to keep using it because it's, I have to spend so many hours troubleshooting it to get anything done. There are other alternatives out there. I mean, obviously there's InDesign which costs so much money. Again, what is this? All these problems. You got to throw money at these problems. But I can't just easily convert it to InDesign. I have to compl- I have to completely recreate it. That's why it's such a mess. So I'm like, listen, all I want to do is take the text out of this program, Affinity Publisher, and get it back in Google Documents or LibreOffice or something that's that's easier. I spent all day trying to get this this text and utterly failed. There's no exporting function. All you can do is export as PDF and then try to convert a PDF into some sort of Microsoft Word or rich text format or something. And I have completely struck out. I tried like 20, 30 different options and methods. Everything is failing. So, I mean, this is, of course, you know, I I mean, I, I got it to the point where I got the text, removed the images, but... It's all, the text is all screwed up. Uh, it's missing line breaks. It's all over the place. I mean, I, I know I could take that and spend hours manually fixing it, which is probably what I'm going to have to do, but, uh, and then find a new page layout. So I'm like, the page layout program. So another crisis, the text crisis. I never thought this would be an issue. How could this be an issue? I, I, I spent all day yesterday, like utterly mystified. Like, how is this even happening?
Like this, it feels like sort of in late nineties, early two thousands type of computer problem. Like the computer and everything was on my computers freezing and crashing. Every program, not just Affinity, LibreOffice, everything was like all messed up. Anyway, I'm working through it. I'm going to try more options. But yeah, I kind of I feel like it's really unfortunate that I'm going to have to like completely. It wasn't that expensive. I think I got all three programs in Affinity Kitty. What's going on? Mojo Mojo Fuzzo, the cat just scratched me. Kitty, by accident though. Um, yeah, it was only like a hundred bucks for all three programs. I got it on sale. So anyway, uh, it's it, it's not that. It's the amount of effort I uh, put into working with this program, and then how how proprietary it is, and how you can't export it as anything but PDF to get it into another program. So maybe it, if this program is such a basket case, and I I don't know if they're ever going to be able to fix it. Um, and it just seems every every update is worse than the last. I'm going to have to go through the painful process of, uh, you know, redoing all the text, which is it, it's such a lot of work. <laughs> but hey, 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 why? You'd think technology would be a bit better these days, but for this stuff, it's still oddly primitive. Ugh, so annoying. Yeah, it's a bit later now. Had some, I think, some greater success exporting the uh, RTF out of the PDF. Uh, I've yet to see. I'm trying to upload it to Google Docs, but it's taking forever to import it. Listen, I'll get it eventually, okay? It's just a matter of time. It's very frustrating, though, all these file formats. Anyway, it had a bit of a Mandela effect. Uh... Yesterday, uh, we were talking about the country of Belize in uh, Central America. And um, I could swear, looking at a map a couple years ago and looking at Belize and seeing that it was, uh, you know, uh, it's sort of on the western, sort of the eastern side of the Yucatan Peninsula. But I completely remember seeing that it was only bordering Mexico. Right, I, I, it, and I remember thinking about it. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Belize is, you know, a country that, you know, is, you know, it's like a part of Mexico, but it's become like this separate country, and it wasn't touching any other countries. And I remember this. I remember reading something online about people wanting to drive to Belize from the U.S. and saying that it was way too dangerous to drive through Mexico, and that you you'd need a guide and a lot of money to bribe the local police and local officials and that you just can't drive in Mexico as, as an American. It's just too dangerous if someone wanted to drive to Belize. And I look at the map and I could, I'm telling you, I remember, I remember seeing the map and Belize was surrounded on all sides by Mexico. Now I'm looking at a map and wow, Belize is uh, kind of in a similar area that I remember, but it's uh, also bordering Guatemala. The hell, man? That's not what I remember from a few years ago, looking at a map of Belize. Now, listen, I know uh, maybe my memory was faulty or maybe, um, for example, if the map I was looking at, like Guatemala's border was not super well defined, uh, it would have, right, Take it, if you merge Guatemala with Mexico, then it would be exactly what I remembered. So maybe it was something with a map that Guatemala wasn't well defined, but... I don't know. All of Central America is not looking like I really remember looking at it. <laughs> what the hell's going on? I know. It's much more 
likely faulty memory rather than reality changing. But it could be reality changing too. You don't ever know. Come on. Yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff. What was the other one? Like uh, uh, New Zealand. Like, and this one I think other people have talked about. If you look at the New Zealand on a map today in this reality, it's to the uh, southeast of Australia. And I super remember New Zealand was as, as, as to the northeast, right? So according to this map, what I, re I remember New Zealand being between like the Solomon Islands and Fiji. I, I remember completely, and other people have remembered that as well. Um, anyway, if there's no proof of anything, it's just all these countries that I remember being in a different place now. Yeah, I've been, always been kind of fascinated with geography, so it is something I would have, you know, I would have thought I would have known about, but who knows? These are mysterious phenomenons. In other news, uh, I guess yesterday, a new Coca-Cola came out called Coca-Cola Spiced, which is supposed to be a, a version of Coca-Cola that tastes a bit more like a Dr. Pepper. Um, I'd love to get some. In the past, whenever a new drink comes out and I start going to stores to try to find it, I can never find it. So I don't know. I, I could go to the store today or... Uh, Next time I'm in a store, I'll, I'll look for Coca-Cola Spiced. And this is a permanent flavor. They're saying this is not a limited edition, not one of these gag flavors like Dream Thoughts or Gamer Fuel, whatever the hell else they had recently. This is like a permanent flavor, apparently. But they say it's very raspberry-flavored. I'm sure there's no raspberries involved. I'm sure they found some volatile chemical that tastes like raspberries. <laughs> I don't know. But I do want to try it, though. Coca-Cola Spiced. Yeah, it's kind of a weird, <coughs> a weird concept. I guess, I mean, these kind of drinks are losing, mar uh, uh, you know, people aren't drinking this crap anymore. Obviously, it's really unhealthy. You know, it's not a good thing. To, see, uh, to me, I'll drink that stuff occasionally. I'm not going to drink it like every day. It's very unhealthy. Please. In other news, uh, I did release another Tapeland release number, Tapeland 171, a Scrawl Walk to New York with Pete, and this was recorded on July 28th, 2002. Heck of a long time ago now. And, you know, uh, with Pete, with Peter and my friend Brian, we have, we're like the Three Weasels, and the Three Weasels is going to have its 40th anniversary in a few years, and you just heard one of our Weasel Adventures fairly recently, um, along with Jefferson, you heard that one, uh, what was that? Fairly recently. Yes, yes. What is it? The Plaza Orb of Weasel Fortune, right? That was the uh, episode name. But anyway, this recording, to me, 2002 was a year where I didn't really do very much of anything. It was the year after 9-11 happened, and uh, it was kind of a bummer year, and I was kind of, it was a year before I started this show, The Overnightscape, and my Bluff Cosm project, which was prior to Overnight, The Overnightscape, kind of, was kind of didn't really do too much and uh, this so this tape was is a really I think important weasel tape and um, I re-listened to it it's about three hours long I recorded it actually on a, on a cassette tape this was before digital recorders were available um, and uh, it's a really good tape it's very interesting it's just me and Peter uh, I guess it starts we start off at the Madison train station in Madison New Jersey we go uh, to Hoboken we take the ferry over to Lower Manhattan, and it's Peter's first time seeing what what was known that then as Ground Zero, or the site of you know where the World Trade Center was blown up, 
in this case, less than a year before. Um, and we talked a lot about that and this all sorts of stuff. It was a really interesting uh, recording. And it, I had played this. It was one of these things. It is. It was in the archive, but I played it in segments on uh, Night Station, right, back in the late 2011. Um, we, we had that Night Station project that lasted very short, only a month, a few months. But it was the episode of Night Station called Wood uh, from December 23rd, 2011. And I, from the notes, I played it in, in, uh, in, in sections and maybe talked about it. I don't know, but... This is the first time it's getting a proper release. I think it's an important tape, considering uh, all that has happened. So I'm glad to have released it. I'm trying to uh, ease myself back into the Tapeland project. I do have a, quite a lot more stuff to uh, release in the Tapeland project, and trying to at least do one a month for now, and hopefully get back in the swing of things, do some more videos, etc. Anyway, as I think I mentioned an episode or two ago, um, I've been rewatching The Mighty Boosh. The, uh, the British comedy show that aired from 2004 to 2007. And there's a bunch of other media as well. I mean, they did radio shows. They have done stage shows. Um, but then the whole thing fell apart, and I was trying to research if they ever wanted to get back together. I guess it, was, it seemed to be a case of uh, the, them touring and in the course of touring just getting tired of each other, and the whole thing just, just blew up, and I guess they've never gone back to it. But it's a great show. It's a... You know, it's a like a sketch comedy show, but it's based on, it's in one contiguous world as opposed to each sketch being a separate thing. Um, so it's Howard Moon and Vince Noir and Naboo the Shaman and uh, Bolo the Ape. And in the first season, they work at a zoo. So there's also Bob Fossil, the zookeeper, and the owner of the zoo, um, Dixon Bainbridge, who's played by Matt Berry, who's a really interesting guy because he's in a lot of stuff. Most re- uh, recently, he's been on what we do in the shadows and I've seen a few episodes of that the vampire comedy but he's also a musician he has a ton of albums I was listening uh, to Blue Elephant uh, today but anyway um, rewatching The Mighty Boosh I'm on season two there's only three seasons what a great a great show that most people have never heard of at least here in the US Uh, surreal comedy show and um I had to look it up, but it looks like I watched it originally in 2009, so about 15 years ago. And as I'm watching The Mighty Boosh, it's on Hulu now. Um, it had been on Netflix, apparently, but remember a couple years ago there was all that, you know, the uh, George Floyd stuff and everything. So the show has some of the characters are, are in blackface to some extent, but there's nothing in the show that is demeaning towards people of different races, etc. But because some of the characters are in quote-unquote blackface, uh, they, they took it off Netflix as a sign of uh, you know trying to uh, clear their network of offensive content, which I thought was ridiculous because you, know, you have to look at this on a case-by-case basis. And in this case, it was not. You can tell there's no intent to, to offend anyone. It was just a... It, and it's basically like, uh, you know... And even at the time, I don't think it, I don't believe that it was considered that offensive at the time. But as you know, things have gotten more and more sensitive as years go on. But anyway, it's on Hulu. Um, and I remember watching it. I remember really liking it. And then what, finding the radio show, finding every single thing I could find about the Mighty Boosh back then. As I'm watching it, the first episode's like, oh, yeah, I don't even remember this. I, this is like, I don't remember anything, any of the details of the episode. It's almost like I'm watching it again for the first time. 
And then the second episode, I'm like, oh, I don't remember any of this either. And the third episode, and like, I honestly did not remember anything. It's like I was, I mean, I know I watched every single episode, but every, as I'm rewatching it, everything seems brand new. And that's very concerning. Is it just, it seemed more than, it didn't seem normal. And all I, I remembered a few things. Of course, I remember old Greg. I remember the two goth girls. And I just watched that episode and I, I remembered at least the two goth girls, but not much else in the episode. Apparently the two goth girls are a group called uh, Robots in Disguise. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm looking to see if I can uh, find anything about Robots in Disguise, the group. <laughs> Let me see if there's any music videos for Robots in Disguise. They were the goth girls on the Nanageddon episode. Music video, yeah. Um, so, so, what, so again, is that... Oh, look, Wake Up, Robots in Disguise official video from 13 years ago. Let's see. Yeah, there they are. The Goth Girls. 2010. Okay, we can, we can stop that for now. I don't know. I don't know if I dig that, but, you know, it's just interesting. I didn't realize that they, were, they had their own band and stuff. Um, so what the heck happened? I, I mean, I have experienced many times rewatching a show and yeah, I don't remember every single detail, but I remembered more of sort of the skeletal structure of it than I did for this. There's something about this that seemed a bit weird in terms of my memories of it. And, you know, as I was talking about the Mandela effect and my pep concept, past editing paranoia and you know, the idea that um, the past may not be as static as we think it is. I mean, I think it's implied in our upbringing and education in the world around us that the past is static and is sort of set down and is lost to us other than through our memories and through whatever physical evidence remains from the past. Otherwise, it's inaccessible. Even one second ago now is no longer accessible. It's just you, there's records, you know, if you take a picture... Oh, that was from that point in time. Take a video or you make a memory or whatever, right? The past is sort of can be reconstructed through those things. But this other idea is that the past the past is mutable, is that that the past can change, which sounds counterintuitive, frightening and very wrong. But I think that um like the Mandela effect, you know, people are remembering things differently. It just seems like the past changed, but the people's memories didn't change along with it. Different theories of timelines merging, of us just being in a computer simulation, this just being something like a dream, but a lot more persistent and structured than a dream, but still the same thing as a dream. There's many different explanations. But I would say that the year 2009... Which is weird because, you know, my favorite number, 209, is just 209 and it's 2009, you know. Uh, it, it was the year that I had the most an issue with this phenomenon. I've, I never had it before or since to that level of the, 209, of the 2009 weirdness. And the fact that I watched this show during that time period and I have this weird memory issue with this one show. Um 
sort of just sketching out an idea here. So what happened in 2009, um, I remember in late 2008, uh, just starting to get, say, like August, September, October, starting to feel like just in, in, in you know, moments, just sort of casually thinking, oh, yeah, it's 2009 already, isn't it? Yeah. I kept thinking it was already 2009, and this happened many, many times. That I was thinking like, "Oh, it's already 2009, isn't it?" Oh no, no, it's, it's September 2008, and I'd never experienced anything like that before, and I haven't experienced it since. And uh, what happened to me in 2009 was also very, absolutely bizarre. I had that Andy Kaufman press conference in, in late 2008, and then. WFMU, the radio station, contacted me. They wanted me to be on the air. Like, why? I, I, I just that was such a mysterious, weird thing. But I took the up the opportunity, and the whole year was very focused on me working on the radio show. And I spent all summer. I was actually on the air on the over the summer, and then they kicked me off the air, like in September. They're like, why? If like, why did they bring me on in the first place? They like fast tracked me to have a show, and then they kicked me off. It was a very weird set of circumstances. And um, so the theory I developed was that something happened in 2009. And if I think it was March or April 2009, there was uh, an event, a destructive event that happened in some timelines. And that um, my theory about what it was is, it, is that the east coast of the United States got uh, hit with a huge uh, tsunami, a tidal wave that killed millions and millions of people. And um, that and that somehow when that occurred, somehow I was able to rewind back to 2008 and try again. The idea being that there must be some timeline where that event doesn't happen, but right? It would be very hard to find. It's almost like a slot machine. You keep, you, you know, you pull the handle, and you're randomly trying to find a, a, a reality where this thing didn't happen. Because obviously, that event I described is a, is a major drag. It's kind of, you know, if I didn't myself get killed, obviously it would be a bummer for the rest of my life to be have been a part of this event. I probably would have been, you know, killed in, in the event, which obviously. That wouldn't bode well for my continuing work in this timeline if I was dead from a tsunami. And that's a very, very disturbing topic. But anyway, um, so over in, in a sense that I had to re- repeat this period of time, say from the six months before, say like October, uh, September 2008 to April 2009, uh, like a time loop, each time going back in time. And there would have to be some capacity to make subtle changes or subtle differences in order to try to get on another track, get onto the timeline where this thing actually didn't happen, right? And uh, so this is all speculation, of course, and, you know, you know, I love theorizing and speculating, but there was something going on there. I think, I don't know the explanation, but something was going on. So anyway, if I had watched this show at the same time that all this other stuff was going on, it would kind of make sense that my memories of the show would be like weirdly messed up, right? If it got, if it got caught up in these time loops and everything. 
anyway, and the um, I do have a, th a working theory of the version of reality or the timeline where the event didn't happen, how that was brought about, and it's rather bizarre, but um, the idea that in the original timeline, uh, Hillary Clinton was elected in 2008 president and um, was in immediately sort of belligerent towards Russia at the time. And again, this is just a purely a theory. It's a theory that is also involves other websites I found online talking about what happened in 2009, but um, that a rogue faction of Ru the Russian military, um, there, there's this situation in the Canary Islands, in the, in the Atlantic, where if you were to sort of set off a small nuke next to these islands, the entire mountain range would like fall into the ocean, creating an enormous tidal wave that would engulf the east coast of the United States. So that's what happened. That was the cause of the event And uh, in this theory. So this, and, and then the rest of the theory is, yeah, this is all sort of based on, was it Project Pegasus, I think it was? Um, hold on, let me see if I can find that. Yeah, Project Pegasus. DARPA's Project Pegasus um, alleges that here in uh, Nutley, New Jersey, the town I live in, at ITT, which was a military contractor, in the 1960s they were doing time travel experiments and that they had a, time, a chronovisor where you could look into the future. And they did see that in 2009 uh, Washington, D.C. was underwater. And uh, they do mention that on these websites, that that, that exact... Um, thing. So I know this is getting into very, very far out territory, but it's just a theory. So then anyway, um, they were able to, that they knew that this was going to happen. They then, in theory, used the chronovisor to get all the details of what happened. And mm -hmm. they realized that the key event was that they needed to prevent Hillary Clinton from becoming president. So back in the 60s, they started um, to uh, find the person who became Barack Obama as this sort of right. Remember that point when Barack Obama just sort of came out of nowhere and sort of became this huge political star and was president for eight years. Um, that because they had seen the future, they figured out this way to alter the timeline and prevent it from happening. Uh, because I think that the implication here is that some factions in the ruling elite there always needs to be a uh, a villain in the story so it was of course the soviet union the ussr for a long time but after they broke up it was then it then became a middle eastern terrorist became the new villain so the uh one faction felt they wanted to go back to the russia thing maybe that that was a better storyline for world control and then the other faction it's like, now nah, let's just stick with the Middle East terrorists for now. So anyway, um, but this is the interest. And I've, I've said this before on the show, this, this particular theory. But so in the original timeline, there was no uh, time travel experiments in Nutley, New Jersey, right? But that in seeking out a timeline where the event did not occur, it was 
necessary to sort of find a past where this secret government program did exist in order for them to look into the future, in order for them to prevent it from happening themselves, right? So you might imagine that it was simply uh, how to visualize this, that you're, you're looking ahead to April, you're in 2008, you're looking ahead to April 2009, and you're, if you're able to at some level like see parallel realities, potentialities, right? Right. All of the ones that the event occurs is are all red. And then maybe there's one where in a sea of red, there might be one green timeline where the thing doesn't happen. So you focus in on that. And it could be an extreme one, which requires some changes to the past as well. Um, but it right. The implication was that it took many who knows how many cyclings of time loops or tries to get past it. The idea is that if you were to do it once, right? if you were to do a time loop like that once, the version of you back in the past after the first loop would have no memory whatsoever of what had happened. The idea is if you do it a, a 10 times, a 100 times, a 1,000 times, then it starts to become harder to hide it to the conscious mind. Saying this all out loud sounds very far out. It really does. And... Uh, I would like to say to you and to myself that this rather fanciful theory is almost surely a flight of fancy and there's no truth to any of it. And I need to remind myself of that because, as you may know, one of my, one of my core philosophies is to not believe in anything but simply examine all of the possible potentialities and hold those as concurrent potentialities in my mind and not believe anything. So I know a pet theory like this can start to bleed over into belief. I'm very aware of that, and I do not want to. I do not want to uh, believe it. I think it's a great story. I think it would make a great like science fiction movie. But, uh, yeah, I think I just want to acknowledge that. It's a fun idea, but almost certainly, I, I admit, it's probably uh, just a cool idea, and there's no reality to it. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> hopefully. Anyway, in other news, I was at the Clifton Commons liquor store and uh, oh, which is, by the way, on land formerly occupied by ITT, and right across the, uh, a, a, a little uh, street, a little road from uh, the liquor store is the entrance to what's left of ITT, which is currently called Harris, which is still a military contractor. Anyway, and then there's other websites which talk about there being underground monorails going to alien bases underneath that as well. Totally separate websites. But it's probably all fake. Anyway, I was there, and I saw this product, um, Delta Cannabis Water. Now, um, these kind of cannabis seltzers apparently are a new thing, but previously I had only ever seen CBD uh, drinks at this place, not full-on uh, cannabis. And um, I was looking. I was doing some research on these, and apparently these were are normally only available in dispensaries. So I'm not really sure should they be selling it or not. But it's really interesting. It's uh, it says plant-based live resin Delta cannabis water, and they have an indica version, which is uh, wedding cake and blood orange flavored, and they have a sativa version, which is um, Maui Wowie and passion fruit flavored. Each one having each can having 20 milligrams of THC and 10 milligrams of CBD. 
20 milligrams of THC, wow. And, and I'm, a, I'm really a complete novice when it comes to this stuff. I've only been getting the 15-milligram Delta-9 gummies, uh, which are derived from hemp. Similar, though. So each can has 20. I, th- I was thinking of getting them, but a six-pack costs $30. So it's kind of expensive. And, you know, I don't know that I really... I mean, I've been enjoying the gummies occasionally, um, I really don't know how similar what I'm... I mean, it has a strong effect, uh, 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 you know, but I'm not sure how similar that is to smoking this stuff. I really never smoked this stuff once or twice in my life, so... I don't know. It just seems like uh, like an interesting escalation of, uh, of cannabis-related products being available in New Jersey, and I was really surprised. I would think these would have to be sold at those uh, dispensaries we have now in New Jersey since they made marijuana legal a few years ago here i've never been i haven't even been to a dispensary there's one kind of down the street in bloomfield but cannabis water i i I should probably get it just to try it out but i've heard of the indica versus sativa thing i've never experienced it myself though again my experience I, i i'm very inexperienced when it comes to this stuff which may seem odd i know most i know people who talk about topics like i've been talking about in this episode probably smoke a lot of weed. I never did. I never got into it. The gummies is the first time I've sort of got into it. And, um, yeah, I've never been into the, into any kind of a drug scene, but anyway, yeah, this is kind of interesting. Mau- what wedding cake and blood orange and Maui. Wowie. What is Maui? Wowie. Is that supposed to be a, like a known flavor? Is that like, a, is that like a mixed drink, a, a Maui? Wowie or, Oh, it's a strain. It looks like it's a strain of cannabis. Okay. Okay, I got you. All right. Listen, I've been leading a very sheltered existence, okay? This cannabis seltzer. Things are changing very quickly. Anyway, and another topic. On HBO, there is a show called True Detective, an anthology show. So each season is different, but they have similarities. So season one of True Detective was with Matthew McConaughey and uh, what's his name? Uh, and Woody Harrelson, yes. And um, it was fantastic. This was in 2014. What a great, what a great show. A great season. Had some, it hinted at supernatural stuff, but you couldn't really tell if there was supernatural stuff or it was all in people's heads. Fantastic. Then the second season came along with different people and uh, was in California. And I kind of liked it, even though most people hated it. Then there was a season three with, I think, Mahershala Ali was in it, and I may have seen it, but it, it didn't leave much of an impression. I, I don't think it was very good. It was whatever. I may have seen it, but I may not have seen it. Then we get to season four, which, which just concluded this past Sunday, called True Detective Season 4, Night Country. And this is with Jodie Foster and, uh, and also the guy that played Doctor Who. What's his name? Um, uh, Chris Eccleston. And... Um, this takes place in Alaska, where it's a certain part of the year. It's it, it's all, it's always night. It's 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 the you know it's never daytime. And uh, they're investigating these this uh, disappearance of these scientists at a, at a research base in Alaska. And uh, the show is horrible. And I stuck with it. I thought you know there were a few there were things about it that were promising, but overall. Each episode just got worse and worse. There were, thankfully, there were only six episodes, and so when I started watching the final episode, I'm like, they could probably finish strong and kind of save the whole season because 
it was the kind of thing. There was enough good about it that if they had uh, pulled off a good ending, it could have thrown the rest of the series in, into a better light, right? And and um, it did not do that. If anything, it just got worse. I, I, this is horrible. It's one of the worst shows I've ever seen, and it's not worth watching. It is really pointless and stupid, and there were so many things left hanging and supernatural stuff. Was it really supernatural? Was it not supernatural? Was it hallucinations caused by pollution? None of it was 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 um, resolved in any way, shape, or form. It was absolutely horrible, and uh, I would not recommend Night Country, True Detective Night Country. And apparently, uh, the show was originally pitched as something completely unrelated to True Detective, but they decided to kind of uh, sort of force it into the True Detective universe, so to speak, and added a few references to season one, including one of the characters in the last episode saying, time is a flat circle, just like, like the guy in the first season. Please, it's just window dressing on, on this piece of garbage. It should never have been, the name of True Detective should never have been maligned with this garbage TV show. Horrible, horrible, honestly. What a misstep. Anyway. Anyway, on a completely different topic, uh, something came to mind uh, yesterday. That when I was younger, I created this system of symbols. And I know I have it in a notebook. I have them in notebooks somewhere in my garage, I think. It was a really interesting um, concept. And um, let, let me get a piece of paper. I just want to see... If I, rem- I, I do remember the concept, and it was, like, really a cool idea. I never did anything with it, and I don't think I've ever seen anyone else do anything like that. Let me try to describe it to you. So the idea was each uh, symbol would um, be a line. So you draw a line, and... Right? You curve it around, and so what the line crosses itself at some point, right? So you can imagine that. What does that look like? Yeah, just like a, a loop, basically. Um, so the idea was all the symbols would start like that, and then the second crossing, right? Just two crossings. The, the different ways the second crossing could be. So, for example, doing the first loop, this is very visual, but, and then loop it around again. So the second loop, so that almost looks like uh, sort of an incomplete pound sign kind of kind of thing. Then you could also do it where the loop goes around to the first part of the line. Then you can do it where the loop goes around the other way to the first part of the line. And there was all these different ways of doing this Trying to remember, yeah, it could, and then the, the second crossing could go inside the loop. The second crossing could go inside the loop from the other way around. I'm trying to remember how many of these there were. There's quite a few of these. One almost looks like an ampersand. One would go around, yeah. But it was a certain number of symbols based on this simple concept. And, man, i got to find my notes, or I have to try to reconstruct this whole this whole concept. Right. Yeah, because you can go around like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all coming back to me now. Uh, it's such a cool idea for a set of symbols. And yeah, I, I, I don't know. 
it's a good idea. So let me just, yeah. Oh, then there's, th- yes, there's that one. Yes, I'm, I'm starting to reconstruct these, yeah. Um, and then if you went to three, obviously there'd be a ton more symbols you could do. Um, yeah. All right, I'll try to reconstruct it. But I thought it was a cool idea. And it's like one of those things that, you know, if it's just sitting in a notebook in my garage, nothing's ever going to happen with it. I don't know what use it is, but it's a cool idea, though. Yeah, very, very cool symbolic system. But I thought it, I don't know if I ever mentioned it on the show before, but and it, it's very visual. It's very hard to describe. Maybe I'll maybe I'll try to develop the idea more. I suppose it's distantly related to a much later idea I had. I called fourteen twenty three, which has to do with uh, a set of ten objects: one of one kind, two of another kind, three of another kind, and four of another kind. And the ways you can split that into two sets, of which there's 60 ways, including one of those 60 is not splitting it at all. So a set of symbols based on some sort of logical rules. That also, I developed that more, but I never really did anything with it. <laughs> Other than talk about it on the show from time to time. As as I got, I, I I don't know. Creating symbolic sets is not necessarily it's a, it's an interesting pastime, but I don't know if there's much practical use for it. I was trying to make it into a game, you know, but listen, there's only so many hours in the day. Are there though? With multiple timelines, we could. There's one timeline where I just developed all these ideas completely, and they became huge, wonderful ideas. That's the idea. Like that, that would be cool if you could, if you did have this capacity. And sort of what I was talking about before. If you had this capacity to, um, right, try out different versions of yourself, uh, and each one focus on a different thing that you're interested in, you could sort of produce this huge body of work from these many copies of you, and somehow, maybe some at some level, bring them all together, <laughs> the different versions of Frank. So this one I'm in now is is obviously the uh, you know the internet radio the overnightscape one, but there may be many other timelines where I'm working on different types of creative projects, and eventually there'll be sort of an, an exhibit in a higher dimension of the many Franks, the works of the many Franks. <laughs> the hell am I talking about? Listen, it's a very weird day. Anyway, uh, today's episode is called Station. And the artwork shows this strange blue room with these circle of interesting lights on the ceiling and these lines on the floor and a corridor leading away with a window, but then there's colored panels under the window and on the left there's some sort of... What is that? I don't even know what that is. And uh, this uh, is a direct pickup of a show art from the past of the Overnightscape. I always look through my old show arts and... um, this one I felt was very interesting, compelling. It was from the Overnightscape 1392 Yield uh, from May 23rd, 2017, so quite a long time ago now. And as I recall, I found this image, and one thing I really enjoy doing online is looking at scans of old magazines. This was an old architectural magazine, I believe. Um, and I'm sure on the episode I probably talked more about where I found the image. But it's just such a striking image. And um, so it really, I figured I'd like to just sort of redo it. Now, originally, uh, it just said, you know, ONS 1392 on the upper left and then yield. 
Um, back then, I didn't have the rule that I wanted to write out the overnight escape and the name of the show in each episode. So in this case, uh, I used a, di a slightly different font. This is actually uh, Icone, I-C-O-N-E, by Adrian Frutiger, and um, fairly obscure font. And I added a bit of a stroke to it. Uh, I really like the way it looks. Uh, Icone is actually a very interesting font that you don't see very often. Perhaps somewhat similar to uh, New Text, which is slightly more... Um, you see new text, uh, ITC new text by Ray Baker around more, but, but anyway, um, I was looking for a word that kind of like yield means you're sort of letting someone else go or you're submitting or you're, it's sort of being, uh, passive. So I wanted to find something that was kind of the opposite of that. And I just sort of thought about station as a word that feels not exactly, but a bit of an antonym to yield. And it also, as a place, it, 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 it represents a concept um, that I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is uh, like our radio station as a, as a space to go into. As you know, a few episodes ago, I was talking about uh, this, uh, the, our lack of a metaverse and that there's these, there's these little, there's these ways you can just go on a web browser and go into a 3D world. One of them is called Mozilla Hubs, and I started looking into it, and I'm just going to have to spend a lot more time figuring out how to make a hub, because uh, I'd love to build our space. I've been talking about that a lot as a virtual space, so this just kind of resonates with that idea. I just, I just love the image, and station feels like you're sort of putting a pin on the map, or you're putting the flag in the ground, or you're sort of staking a claim to a, a space. Right, as opposed to yielding. <laughs> that was my thought process anyway, but I really love the way this looks. And I typed out the overnightscape in the lower right corner, upper and lower case. Anyway, love that image. And that's the story of today's uh, show art and title. Anyway, uh, in my research for The Mighty Boosh, I was looking at Julian Barrett, because he played Howard Moon, he doesn't seem to have been quite as done it quite as much uh, as uh, as uh, uh, Vince Noir, the guy who plays Vince Noir, who's um, uh, uh, Noel Fielding is his name. And I know he's been on a few things. He's done a lot of TV in Britain, the Great British Bake Off, a show I've never seen, but apparently it's very popular. I've heard people talk about it over over the uh, over the years. So I was interested in uh, in Julian Barrett, what he was doing. So I found one show that Julian Barrett was in as a voice was a show called Ultra City Smiths. And when I saw that, it rang a bell. I'm like, I heard about Ultra City Smiths. And I thought it was like a puppet show, kind of like the old Jerry Anderson Super Marionation. That's, that's, and I remember reading one article about it a couple of years ago. This show came out in 2021. Um, and I think it was on AMC, and then it was then canceled. So there was only one season and just a few, I think six episodes. Um, so I started watching it and it's very interesting it's not puppets it's actually stop motion animation and it's done by the people who do Robot Chicken and I've seen a few episodes of that a long time ago so the characters are kind of uh, like baby dolls all the adults are kind of based on like a baby doll kind of form um, very disturbing char looking characters 
And it's in this uh, very corrupt, crime-ridden city called Ultra City. And it follows the adventures of a bunch of different characters. And there's a murder. And um, it's... Uh, to me, it's an incredibly like an unpleasant show, the, not just to look at. I thought the visuals were kind of brilliant, um, and it has a big cast. Let me see some of the B.B. Newworth, Kristen Bell, Deborah Winger, Dax Shepard, Terry O'Quinn from Lost, Julian Barrett, as I said, Tim Meadows, Louise Guzman, Tom, Tom Waits, the actual Tom, John C. Riley. Tim Heidecker from uh, the Tim and Eric show, a uh, great job show. And, right, a lot of Jimmy Simpson, who you may, who was actually friends with my, my cousin Vinny at one point. You, won't, you, you don't know the name, but you'd know the face. He's been in a ton of stuff. He was in, uh, was that show about the president? You know that show, the president show? House of Cards, yes, that was the show, House of Cards. Anyway, um, I tried watching this show, Ultra City Smiths, and it's, and it's just a bunch of people with the last name Smith are involved in one of the plot points, so that's why it's called Ultra City Smiths. I, I mean, I, I tried to keep going with it. It has so much going for it, but around three-quarters of the way through the third episode, I just closed, I closed the window in the browser. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not going to continue watching this. It's not fun. It's, it's annoying. And unpleasant, and I don't even want to keep watching it. So maybe so, as, as they seem to get a lot of good reviews. People were very upset when it got canceled, but listen, it's just not for me. It's not a show for me. It was sort of uniquely a uniquely un, unpleasant television show. Between the writing and how the characters are written and the weird baby doll form of the characters, it was all just very off, very off indeed. What's going on with this robots in disguise? <laughs> not really digging that but yeah yeah listen they can't all be winners what do you want some stuff is good and stuff stuff is some stuff is bad in pop culture and look at this the final version of Bellatro is finally out is this it yes this is it this is the final version the release version what a really cool game For many months, a demo version of this game has been out that has been a really fun in its own right. And uh, apparently this is the full version. This is the final version. I'm playing it for the first time. It's B-A-L-A-T-R-O, Balatro. And uh, this is a game where you um, play poker hands and try to beat the, beat the house, basically. Beat the blind. And uh, there's all these things you can do. You can buy all these cards, like all these specialized uh, jokers. You can buy tarot cards, celestial cards, all sorts of fun stuff. What the heck? I, I, I like, you know, I've been doing the, the f trying to go for flush runs. Hmm, not doing too well here. Here's a flush. And it's cool, it kind of has like sort of a, it looks like an old video screen kind of thing. Pixel art style. Uh, what a cool game. 
Now, I want to see what the store looks like in the final version here. Interesting. Playing cards can be purchased from the shop. Uh, hmm. I think I'm just, I think I'm just going to go to the next round. I don't want to buy anything just yet. It's a cool game though. Really unique. Very relaxing. Alright, let me try to get try to get a uh, flush here. Eesh. Not having too much luck. It's early on though. There's some good jokers that help you with flushes. I know there's I, I know flush is just one way you can go. That that's been the way I've been going lately. In the demo at least. Hmm. Going kind of slow. What do we got here? I guess I'll do a two pair. This is on uh, Steam on PC. I don't know if it's available on Mac or not. It's not it's not on the phones or anything. This would be really good on the phones, even though yeah, the interface would be kind of small on a phone, I suppose. What the heck? Let's see. Uh oh, I don't know if I'm gonna make it here. I messed up. Uh I didn't make it. No, I did make it. I made it. Okay. <laughs> Just barely. I'm not doing too good. This is my first game of real Bellatro and I don't know. Some jokers. Oh, I like the banana. Yeah, the banana's a good one. Get the banana. Uh, the pear one? I don't know. Arcana pack, yes. Let's try this. Get some good tarot cards. The sun. Create up to two random planet cards. Yes, try this one. The high priestess. Oh, I, I usually like to have Jupiter because that's the flush planet. Alright, but I'll pump up some stuff. Pluto pumps up high card. I don't know if that's really very useful, but anyway, check out Bellatro. It's a fantastic game. All spade cards are debuffed. Uh oh, yeah. The goad. Let's see if I can beat this one. What am I doing here? Uh, this. I don't know what I'm doing. Let's discard all the stuff, see what we get. No! Try one more time. Yes, I got a good flush here. And hopefully the banana. One in four chance of being destroyed. They changed the banana, the Gros Michel. Gros Michel. All right, that's good though. Uh, uh, the banana's been like uh, nerfed. They nerfed the banana. It used to be like a one in 10 chance. Now it's a one in four chance. Well, this is the final version of the game. Oh God. Uh, Celestial pack. Let me re-roll. I, I need some good. Um, this one's good. This is even Steven when you have even cards. Yeah. Anyway, this is a good game. 
Bellatro, you can like... Uh... I was so into it for a while, then I stopped playing it for a little while, and uh, now, now, that's, now it's out, so... Five, six, seven, eight. No, that's not a straight. So yesterday morning, I woke up and remembered a bit of my dream. I was in China, and I was at a buffet. It was one of these huge places. It was like a huge food service area where there were all these different areas. You could just grab the food. But we didn't have plates, so we, we had to just sort of grab whatever we can hold in our hands to eat it. And there was this uh, zucchini chips. It was like, um, imagine if you had like a zucchini and you sliced it lengthwise. So they were long, like about six or seven inches long, but thin slices of zucchini, if you can imagine that. And they were like fried, like they, they became like chips. And I know they do have zucchini chips, but I was researching it. I didn't see any lengthwise ones like that. And I was eating them in the dream and they were so good, very tasty. Uh, these uh, zucchini chips in China in the dream. And uh, so I was with a group of people, and one of the people I was with was Elvis Presley or someone that was an Elvis impersonator. And so in this buffet area, there were lots of different subsections. There was like a place where they had a grill that was behind. There was like a, it was like a wall, and you walked around it to get to the grill area, so... The Elvis guy that I was with started singing like Elvis songs. I heard him singing Elvis songs, and all the people were very impressed with him doing Elvis songs on the other side of this wall by the grill area. Yeah, and um, I was uh, I was thinking of recording for the show. I had my recorder with me, but I didn't. And I'm like, oh, at this point, should I just go back to the hotel? What should I do? And um, then I sort of zoomed out almost like I was looking at it like on Google Maps and I zoomed back in and I was in this laundromat and uh, there was I was interviewing someone and somehow I said yes ma'am and the the scene focused in on this the logo of a Chinese washing machine it was like um almost like this like the like the I I remember the logo almost like a lowercase o uppercase s lowercase o but it was all very stylized so what was it? Oso brand uh, washing machines in China, and I, and I said I want to find and talk to some person. I was trying to find someone in the laundromat to interview for my show. I guess <laughs> that was about it. That was about it. That was about all. I, all I uh, all I dreamt. But I really those. I want. I want those zucchini chips. They were so good, but they're they're from a dream. They're not real. I guess I could try to make them. You know, I want those chips. They, it was. They were like. I don't remember the last time I had like a food in in dreams that was so good that I want to have it in real life, but you can't you can't have it unless you can uh, remember that story I wrote in my failed science fiction novel Severe Repair, where there's like this special service called Dream Express, where they can ship things from dreams back to your back to you in reality, and this weird like anthropomorphic deer creature comes and delivers it to your door. <laughs> fiction, it's fictional, but I'd love to get those chips. Those were so good. So I stopped by Barnes and Noble uh, the other day. I don't know that place. I- I'm amazed it still exists. This is the one in Clifton, at Clifton Commons. Um, they closed off the top level, but the rest of it is still going. And it just, uh, you know, I went through there. There's not really that much interesting stuff. 
it's almost like going to Barnes and Noble is almost like going to the past. But I went to the reference section and I saw uh, uh, the World Almanac. Right, it's one of these books has all the facts about the countries in the world. And I remembered uh, the People's Almanac. This was a big thing. It was like a um, this hugely popular series of books in the 70s and early 80s. And I had some of them. We definitely had the People's Almanac, and especially I was a huge fan of the Book of Lists, which was so good. It was a great book just to sit and browse, and it was just amazing. Sort of like how you how you surf the Internet or scroll on the Internet. It was kind of like... That was kind of like before the internet, you could do that. And um, do I have this? Yeah. So, People's Almanac, right? Let me just read the article here. Is a series of three books compiled in 1975, 1978, and 1981 by David Wallachinsky and his father, Irving Wallace. In 1973, Wallachinsky became fed up with almanacs that regurgitated bare facts. He had the idea for a reference book to be read for pleasure, a book that would tell the often untold true tales of history. He worked alone for 12 months before being joined by his father for a further year of research. The People's Almanac was published by Doubleday in 1975 and became a bestseller. Its success led to The People's Almanac No. 2 in 1978 and No. 3 in 1981, both published by William Morrow and Company. One of the most popular chapters was a selection of lists, lists with, which spawned the Book of Lists. Uh, the People's Almanac books depart from conventional almanacs, such as world, the World Almanac, uh, by including many entertaining facts, uh, lists, and esoteric knowledge. Special sections include ones on natural and man-made disasters, footnote people in world history, biographies of fictional characters such as Superman, past predictions by psychics, both correct and incorrect, and predictions for the years 1975 and on. Odd and unexplained happenings, such as devil's footprints, are also discussed, although authoritative references are generally not given. What are devil's footprints? It's a phenomenon where you'd see these footprints. Okay, great. Um, anyway, uh, so looking at uh, David Wallachinsky's biography, it's showing the series of books. Um, so yeah, there was the the Three People's Almanacs and the Book of Lists 1, 2, and 3. Three coming out in 83. And then there was a book called, um, where is it? It's a book that I have. It's the Book of Predictions in 1980. I have a hard cover copy of that. I do have that. That's one of their books, the Book of Predictions. All the predictions people made. And one of the predictions in there was that in the future, books would be printed on dark blue paper and the writing would all be in, in yellow. The hell, there's a giant truck outside. What's going on? It says logistics. That's weird. Um, anyway, uh, so if you remember my old website, the area Obliviana, I followed. I had a dark blue background and yellow letters because of that in the book of predictions. Um, and then, yeah, I don't, I don't know how many other books. I guess there was the People's Almanac Presents the 20th Century in 1999, the Book of Lists, the 90s edition, the new Book of Lists in 2005. So there's been some of these things. But what really caught my eye was uh, the tr uh, mass market paperback of the People's Almanac number no. 3. And uh, I think I may buy it on uh, eBay here. The People's Almanac number no. 3 sort of has a purplish cover. National bestseller, now at a popular price, 450 uh, this says it's in excellent condition, and I just love the cover of the People's Almanac Number no. Three from 1981. It just feels like right in the heart of 
my my uh, how old was I then? I was I was like a teenager. I, I, I was uh, I was like thirteen when this book came out, and I don't think I had this one. So let me buy it now. It's only twenty bucks. I, I, I want to have a piece of the past. Yes, here we go. Last one. Why are they saying it's the last one? Ooh, some sort of food delivery. Mm-hmm. Let's see what's going on here. All right, I don't know why I can't. Oh, come on. All right, hold on a second. All right, I ordered it. This is an impulse purchase. I don't know. This is such a cool... Like, you would... This... The People's Almanac and all their offshoot books were um, such a big part of our lives at one point, and then and now it's not anymore. No one, probably no one now even heard of them. What was the uh, what's that article? Book of Lists author Wallachinsky invented the internet, sort of. What's this? What are they trying to say here? Uh. David Wallachinsky didn't invent what's on the internet. It just seems that way. Yeah, so I guess sort of the li- the type of lists and the type of information is very similar to a lot of the articles and pages you see on the internet. I could see that. Another show from Britain, maybe around the same time as The Mighty Bush, I'm not sure, was called Little Britain. And this one, yeah, I don't know if I really would want to rewatch it. It was David Williams and that other guy, that guy who also wound up on... Uh, Doctor Who for a while as a character named Nardole. I think that also had similar complaints about its use of uh, some insensitive material, but uh, yeah, I do. And then there was a version they made for HBO or something. Let me look this up because I remember watching every bit of what they made, but it's, yeah, I don't know if it's, uh, yeah, Matt Lucas and David Williams. When was this on? 2000 to 2002. So a little bit... Oh, it was on the radio, and then it was on the TV? No, what am I looking at here? It was on radio from 2000 to 2002, and on TV from 2003 to 2006. So yes, a very similar um, time period as Mighty Boosh. Yeah. Computer says now was one of the catchphrases. Do they have any reference to the criticism? Uh, in June 2020, Little Britain was removed from BBC iPlayer, Netflix, and BritBox alongside Come Fly With Me for its use of blackface. Okay, another show that did it. Uh, in March 2022, Little Britain was restored to BBC iPlayer after scenes containing the use of blackface with the characters Ting Tong and Desiree Devere were removed. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of a good show, I guess. I, I just I don't feel any desire to rewatch it though. What was the American one though? Little Britain Abroad. Little Britain USA, there it was, two thousand seven. No? Two thousand eight. Okay. It's so funny that these years, like the 2000s between 2000 and 2010, is becoming this distant past that you can barely remember now. It's wild. Anyway. Um, yeah. So 
So looking over here at the Mighty Boosh, they uh, did not remove, they did not edit it uh, on the iPlayer like they did. I, think, as, I mean, as I recall, I think, I guess it's a matter of degree in terms of how much um, the use of that offensive content was sort of meant to be a uh, parody of a certain type of person. It's, I think that Mighty Boosh was so weird and just random and surreal they just uh, they put a warning on it and then they just showed it yeah 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 i mean you think they'd be doing that stuff from stuff from the night like the 1950s or 40s or 30s not like from 2007 you know what i mean it's kind of bizarre anyway uh fish is back yes this week starting tomorrow fish is back fish in mexico Yes, let me find the information here. I'm not going to Mexico to see fish, as I kind of want to at some point. They do it every year. They've been doing it for a while. You go on a Mexican vacation to a resort. Riviera Maya is the name of this place. And uh, let me see. Yeah. So I'll be watching from home on the uh, on the streaming. How much is it? Four shows plus a T-shirt, one thirty-two ninety-nine. Listen, it ain't cheap. Fish ain't cheap, but I got to see it. This will be the first show since that New Year's Eve show I went to. Yes, indeed. Really looking forward to seeing more fish. Fish in Mexico. Okay, I got it. So let's see. Tomorrow it's on at nine p.m. starting. Okay. Yeah, that's like the that's like a late night first. That's like the first night when people arrive. They're giving, I believe they're giving them more time to uh, settle in before they go see uh, perhaps a shorter show? I'm not sure, the first night. And then uh, Thursday starts at 7.30 our time. Friday, 7.30. And then Saturday is at 6. I think, yeah, I think the Sunday is when people uh, pack up and leave. So I guess they, they want it to be ending a little earlier so people can get to sleep and wake up for their flight home. However, that works. The Moon Palace Resort. Is that a nice resort? Let's see if I can find pictures of the Moon Palace Resort. Let's see. Oh, it's considered Cancun. Though, yeah, I guess, yeah, it's in Cancun, I guess. Yeah. I've never been to Cancun, which is there on the Yucatan. Actually, right across the water from uh, Cuba there. Wow. <clears throat> the Moon Palace Resort. Let's see. Uh, three dimensions. It's not in 3D? What the hell? I know last year I was seeing people, like, there's, you can get rooms that are, like, right, you, you can sit on your balcony and watch the show. Those must be expensive rooms. That would be cool to do, though, right? Just sort of hang out. Okay, I think this is near where they're going to, yeah, they, they play on the beach. Looks like quite an idyllic place. Listen, it's a matter of money. I mean, this stuff is so expensive. Yeah. But I guess they have a ton of fans that can afford it. I don't know. Just like Steely Dan says, All those day-glow freaks who used to paint the face, they've joined the human race. Some things will never change. That is, of course, from their song. Get along, 
Get it long, kid Charlemagne. About a drug dealer in California. Every A-frame had his number on the door. Yeah. But yeah, like all these, you know, the people that were these weird hippie people, they they grew up and got jobs and have enough money to go to Mexico now, I guess. All right, now let's do the the most depressing uh, thing. Check out the 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 Sphere ticket prices. Uh, last time I checked, Casino Fish is going to play the Sphere out in Las Vegas in April, and. Uh, the tickets are astronomically priced. So now I'm looking for one ticket. I may go by myself. Holy, let's look at this one ticket. I could swear there was one for 2000 This is for four nights, though. Not that it's any excuse. $3,112 the cheapest for one ticket. No, I, I need it to be ch less. It's got to go down, right? I mean, and there is one ticket available in Section 209, which I would love to sit in Section 209, obviously. It's my favorite number. And I do like going to Section 209 at Madison Square Garden in New York. This is owned by Madison Square Garden. Just imagine if I can go to Section 209. So this is a ticket for four nights. Here's the price for the... Uh, there's only one ticket available in uh, in Section 209. The, the cost. I'm not, I'm not kidding. This is the actual cost. $11,340. What? Is someone really going to pay $11,000 to sit in Section 209? Get out of here! No, I, 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 I honestly, I mean, if, if if it goes down to like, I mean, I think it would have been it, the original ticket was like five hundred. You know what I mean? So, if it's like a thousand, it's twice as much. You know, I don't know. I think, listen, I don't think I can afford this thing. Anyway, but it's it's just uh, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. All right, if it goes under two thousand, I might consider it. Then I have to get a real cheap hotel. But if I don't get a see, the thing is, I haven't. If you know, the longer I wait to get a flight, they're going to be more expensive. So listen, how might I slice it? It's going to be too expensive. I may just need to skip it. But I want to be in the sphere, damn it! All right, uh, we have to see. It's just a matter. Eleven thousand dollars? It's ridiculous. Who are these people? All these day glow freaks who used to paint their face. So I just found something out today that I didn't know before. To use a, a bit of millennial humor, I was today years old when I found out that it's really interesting that there's this um, a type of internet humor that I guess you could say is millennial humor. And I think I was today years old is one of those. The people are very tired of it by now, so it's probably passe by now. I used to always see people post that. I was today years old when I found out what supergrass meant. Um, supergrass, the, the only reason I, I ever knew the word supergrass because there's this band supergrass. Let's see, whatever happened to them. I remember I got the, uh, the CMJ New Music Monthly uh, mix CD, and I think their song Caught by the Fuzz was on there. And uh, really good stuff. And I and I got their album as an import. I should Coco. Ooh, now there's the 20th anniversary edition. When did this come out? 
it was this this band like in Britain there's like these bands that are the a big thing for like three months and then something else comes along what was the original of this one 95 wow 20th anniversary collector's edition but wait it's not 2025 is it 2025 95 05 oh 20 that's from 2015 okay the 30th anniversary is coming up okay but this was the song that I heard got by the fuzz well I was still on the buzz I don't think this album aged very well. I mean, I liked it at the time, but as yeah, I don't really care to revisit it. But the, <coughs> the reason this came up is because, you know, I'm I'm kind of obsessing on uh, Alexi Sale, who was in the Young Ones. I talked about last time. There's a show called Alexi Sale's Stuff that I've been watching. It's just on YouTube. And uh, so I was looking at Alexi Sale's uh, TV and movie work, and he was in a movie called The Supergrass in 1985. And uh, <coughs> let's see if we can find this here. Like The Supergrass, I wonder if, I wonder if uh, the band Supergrass named themselves after this movie. <coughs> so I read this movie, by the way, is a lot of the people from The Young Ones, Adrian Edmondson and Jennifer Saunders, who also was, who was on The Young Ones once or twice. Um, Nigel Planner, who of course was Neil on The Young Ones. Dawn French, again, also she was on there. Alexi Sale was on The Young Ones. <coughs> it was uh, the, it was they, they were all part of this uh, co- alternative comedy group called the Comic Strip. So the Supergrass. I'm like, what what is a Supergrass? I, all I know is the band name. So I was today years old when I found out. Here's the plot. And Adrian Edmondson, of course, uh, played Vivian. Very metal. After returning from a holiday at Hope Cove in the West Country, Dennis Carter, Adrian Edmondson, tries to impress a girl by untruthfully boasting of being a drug smuggler. The girl is unimpressed. However, he is overheard by the police, who persuade him into becoming a supergrass and inform on his associates. The more Dennis lies, the bigger the hole he digs for himself. Sounds like a good movie. I haven't checked if it's available online yet. But what is a supergrass? A supergrass is a British slang term for an informant who turns king's evidence, in ret- often in return for protection and immunity from prosecution. In the British criminal world, police informants have been called grasses since the late 1930s, and the super prefix was coined by journalists in the early 1970s to describe those who witnessed against fellow criminals in a series of high-profile mass trials at, this, at the time. So I had no idea... You know, in, in American English, it would be like a snitch, a stool pigeon, a rat, you know, someone that uh, informs on their fellow criminals. But in Britain, is known as a grass. I never heard about this. I'm not stating there's any weird alternative occult explanation. I just think I never heard of it. So super grass. I mean, I, I'm thinking that they're, it, it's really good weed, you know. Hey, we got some super grass here. Grass, of course, being a <coughs> slang term for marijuana. Right? I thought it was that simple. It was like a... Really good marijuana, super grass. But no. <coughs> now I'm today years old learning about this, yeah. Wow, that's wild. See, you learn things every day. Uh, let's see if we can find some information about I was today years old. Because I do feel like this, because millenn- the millennials are the generation after mine. I'm Generation X. 
they have a very unique style of humor. And I do think, as the aforementioned um, Tim, and, Tim and Eric Awesome Show, Great Job, was a uh, an example of millennial humor as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's a whole subreddit, Today Years Old. Isn't there a site, Know Your Meme? Is that even a meme? Yeah, it is. it is a meme type. Here we go. Know Your Meme, I Was Today Years Old. Is an online expression typically used in the title of a post or discussion thread when introducing an interesting fact or trivia that had been previously unknown to the poster. I don't know if it's officially millennial. It just feels like millennial humor, you know? Let's see. It's kind of, it has sort of a, cute, uh, a cutesy edge to it, you know? Uh, yeah. I think that's probably what separates millennials from Gen X Gen Xers is Gen X is like super cynical and I think millennials lack a lot of that cynicism in, in their humor. Uh let's see what it says on Know Your Meme. There was something here. A similar vein to the phrase did you know or today I learned in 2018, the expression began to introduce ironic posts that include a false fact. The origin, on September 10th, 2015, Twitter user at Stacy Lynn Charles tweeted the first known usage of the expression, saying, I was today years old when I learned that I had been wearing the wrong size bra my entire life. Shown below, left. After June 17th, 2018, the phrase went viral after Twitter user at Gabriel Veeper tweeted an image of the staples of a staples saying I was today years old when I found out that the L in staples was really a half open staple really that's kind of obvious alright anyway people don't need to know that I thought they would know that the tweet garnered over 70 likes in two years hmm so here's the spread. This is a good website. It tells you the spread of the. This is an important, you know, memes and all this stuff is important because it sort of comes and goes, but it's part of our life at this time. Um, in June 2018, Twitter user at Today Years Old IG began tweeting using the expression format that has gained over 64,900 followers in two years and has gained over. That summer, various media outlets published lists of tweets, including the phrase, including BuzzFeed. On January 13, 2020, Redditor Rieli Castle posted an image showing someone showing someone green Gatorade into a pot of cauliflower captioned, I was today years old when I found out how broccoli is made, to our subreddit, meme subreddit. Okay, so that's like a humor, you know, making, yeah, green cauliflowers, broccoli. Ha ha. I was today years old when I found out the middle row of a package of Oreos was actually for salsa. So that's when people started just doing like like weird random humor. On April 1st, 2020, TikTok marriage counseling uh, user marriage counseling uploaded a video about peeling potatoes using the hashtag today years old and accumulated over 591,000 likes in 3 months. Hmm. It's very extensive research on this on this today years old situation, okay? Uh, any, any more context for this? No, no more context. Anyway, yeah. I find it interesting because 
as um, time goes on, things that you're annoyed by and kind of scoff at at the time now become part of history, and and it's interesting to examine history, is it not? I think it is. Anyway, talking about the past, uh, a video game from the late 90s called Crazy Taxi has been... Uh, there's been a lot of Crazy Taxi stuff going on lately, okay? Crazy Taxi originally came out in uh, 1999. I believe it was in the arcade. Yeah, in 99, and then it came out on the Dreamcast in 2000. So I used to play the games on my Dreamcast so much. As, as, as you may know, if you've played the game, it's one of the best games ever. Very unique game, Crazy Taxi. You're a taxi driver in a San Francisco-type city, um, and you have to pick people up and drop them off, and it's crazy. You're driving fast, smashing at everything. And it has this sort of, uh, what do you call it, like the offspring, those, that kind of music. Day after day, your home lies a wreck. They played like four songs from like um, those kind of bands. And it became integrated with the game. Apparently they lost a license, so now if you, play, if you, if you buy the version on Steam, uh, they don't have the songs. And also they had real-world locations like Tower Records and Kentucky Fried Chicken and, uh, and The Gap and things like that. And I, apparently they were taken out because they lost the license. Sega does lose their license. Remember they lost their license, the Ferrari license, and the entire OutRun series got went kaput? That's not good. They, they should bring uh, OutRun back, for God's sakes. Anyway, um, so first, the first thing that happened was um, I found out this website, Insert Coin Clothing, and um, they are... Uh, selling a Crazy Taxi t-shirt. I think it's a t-shirt. I, I can't tell because the, the, the picture is showing someone wearing a long sleeve shirt with kind of black and white checkerboard on it. And then there's just a beautiful yellow t-shirt with the Crazy Taxi logo. And so I, I pre-ordered it. It's shipping mid-late March. So it's about another month probably till I'll get this uh, t-shirt. I don't know if, if it's sort of it's this weird contraption of a long sleeve shirt and a short sleeve shirt sort of combined together or if it's just a t-shirt I would kind of just prefer it be just a t-shirt but I had to get it because Crazy Taxi is so meaningful to me I used to again I used to play it so much on my Dreamcast and um, of course Crazy Taxi 2 also on Dreamcast which was also quite good it was more of a New York based uh, map and there was a Crazy Taxi 3 which came out on PC and I did I do have a copy of it somewhere I haven't played it. It takes place in Las Vegas, right? Um, so I've been playing it. I have a the Dreamcast emulator that I've been playing it. It just is such a. I have a controller, so it's such a great game to go back and explore. I've always been fascinated by the map, the world of Crazy Taxi, especially just that original arcade map. There's like a shopping mall. There's a there's a cable car stop. There's a bus station. There's so much stuff. I would just love to get out of the taxi and walk around and explore that. That city. <laughs> and other people have posted about that. There is a website where you can walk around. You can explore maps from video games. And I found it recently. I found it. What was it called? It was, um, I rediscovered it and now I forgot it again. I thought I saved a link to it. Hold on a second. Because it's kind of cool. Like they just load the map and you can just wander around these places. All right, let me pause and see if I can find that. Yeah, I found that. It's called noclip.website, N-O-C-L-I-P period 
W-E-B-S-I-T-E, noclip.website. Yeah, and you're able to go through maps. It's like like a lot of Mario Kart stuff, different stuff. It's really fascinating uh, to look at, to be able to just casually go through those maps. And I really love that. A game I used to play and a game that they kind of ruined called Overwatch, which is now Overwatch 2. You can actually, um, you have to go through a series of steps, but you can uh, create your own instance of a game and then become a... Uh, an observer, and then you can sort of fly around the map. And there's actually a no a no clip um, key combo. I think it's Control I, which lets you uh, go beyond the edges of the map. So it's really cool to explore the maps like that. Uh, but they they don't have Crazy Taxi for any of this stuff. I think in the future, if there is like a you know a real metaverse, they'll have to create the, that Crazy Taxi city as a place you can go in the metaverse and just hang out, have lunch, and Watch all the taxis going nuts outside, yeah. I'm sure they'll do it because the big news, and this was actually, excuse me, this was after I bought the T-shirt, pre-ordered the T-shirt. I started hearing rumblings that, um, let's see. Trying to find the article here. (coughs) They're saying that a crazy taxi is going to become a triple A game. They're bringing back crazy taxi. Someone here is saying it's going to be like a, a live service, but like Fortnite. So it may be like a persistent city where, yeah, so it sounds like they're going to turn Crazy Taxi into this huge new thing. It's really cool. Here's an article. Uh, Sega's new Crazy Taxi reboot is going to be a AAA game. And they did show some footage from the new Crazy Taxi. It seems that we may be getting the Crazy Taxi reboot in the AAA scope as Takaya Sagawa, Sega's senior executive officer and president of its internal studio, Sapporo Studio, which is responsible for the upcoming reboot, stated in a recent <coughs> excuse me, interview. Why do I have hiccups? This is ridiculous. Let's see. Uh, yeah, say Crazy Taxi. Adding to that, a couple of months ago, Sega shared excuse me, that the new Crazy Taxi will feature innovative and fresh-style driving action and will allow players to drive with a cheerful feeling of freedom combined with the fusion of nature and city. What the hell are they talking about? <coughs> They're also bringing back Jet Set Radio, Shinobi, Golden Axe, and Streets of Rage. Again, where is OutRun in all this? I mean, I really don't... I mean, I have to imagine they could just take the Ferraris out of OutRun and bring back OutRun, I would hope. Hmm. Yeah. No news on OutRun. Maybe they're holding that one back. Is that sort of... For a lot of people like me, that would be like the ultimate... Maybe they'll create uh, that the, the game that was rumored to exist but never did called Outrun Knights. But they do have a game called Knights that's completely different. But Outrun Knights was a version of Outrun that was t- took place completely at night. It was one of those urban legends, but never happened. I thought it was a good idea. All right, so I found the footage of the new Crazy Taxi. Yeah, that looks similar to that like if you when you start the arcade Crazy Taxi and when, if you turn around, this looks like that area where you go down the hill, yeah, by the fire station. 
There's police cars now. You can get arrested now. <laughs> this looks very interesting. There's very little bit of footage. But there's like the Golden Gate Bridge-ish bridge. So it looks like it's going back to a San Francisco-type city. But it looks like there's going to be police chases, too. It's kind of... There was never police in the original Crazy Taxi. What are they adding these complications? Ooh. Uh, uh, Osmus Hotel. Interesting. Look at this. Undecided Street? I guess they haven't named the street yet. So cool. The very limited footage you can see. New crazy tags. Really looking for, this pickuping is annoying me. I don't know what's going on. Jet Set Radio, Shinobi, Golden Axe, Streets of Rage, Crazy Taxi, and more. Hopefully Outrun. Now in development. Ooh, there was another frame from Crazy, crazy Taxi. Let's see. <coughs> I mean, I, I do like Jet Set Radio, but Crazy Taxi is more my, my favorite. Where was it? Oh, there we go. Okay, hold on. Yeah, that's another f free frame. Oh, that's a, that's the guy with the green hair. What's his name? Um, Axel. That looks really cool. Oh, and, and the girl with the uh, the red uh, pigtails. Kind of. <coughs> Do not really pigtails, but kind of. Hmm. Crazy taxi, I love it. All right, I'm looking at the uh, yeah. So if I it does have the sleeves, it's uh, it says uh, hey hey hey, in the arcades or on your home consoles. Crazy Taxi is a piece of video game history. <coughs> Represent the stunt driving classic in style with this classic turn of the millennium style shirt with stitched in checkerboard long sleeves. So they're stitched in. Okay. I, I, I can dig that, I guess. I should have read the description. <laughs> anyway, it's ordered, so I'll get it in about a month. Hopefully. I don't. I think it'll probably be a couple years before that other crazy taxi game is <gasps> coming out. But what is this? Hiccuping. Driving me crazy. Hey, it's later on. I love you, Andrea. <clears throat> Turns out the Supergrass is on just on YouTube. There's Dawn French. Hi. Adrian Edmondson. Look, I forgot which you like best, dark or furnace, so I've got both. I thought it saved time. Oh, cheers. So you've been away a bit then? Yeah. yeah. Didn't you get my card? Yeah, your holiday in the West Country. Anyway, maybe I'll watch this. The Supergrass. Yeah. So I made some more progress getting the text out of the book. Um, it's a starting point. I have to decide what program I'm going to use, what file format, because really the nature of the project is very much uh, should be open source, should be an open format. So maybe it's good that that program Affinity Publisher had a complete meltdown. It did work for making the book, but I don't know. At this point, I may just have to switch to InDesign for the next one because I, I can't deal with the constant crashing and the instability of this program. I'm really surprised and shocked that it's this bad. I've never quite seen a program, a commercial program, just collapse like that. Um, <clears throat> and this has been going on for a while, so I don't know. I don't think it's, yeah, as I said, I think I've, I need to uh, escape this program. <coughs> um, I know, it's odd. There's really very few options. I mean, LibreOffice is the uh, obvious choice. Google Docs, eh, not really. I mean, 
you know, you can save ODT, which is the LibreOffice uh, for <coughs> format <coughs> or OpenOffice format. You know, it's kind of the same thing. OpenOffice was a open source alternative to mic the Microsoft Office suite. And then these major corporations bought it and ruined it. So it was still open source. So a group of people <coughs> forked it <coughs> and uh, made a new version that would not be under the, the thumb of this major corporation. Uh, so that's a good one. That's you know, pretty stable. It lacks some features. I, I really couldn't make the book on that. That, that. that was one of the issues. I needed a good layout program to make the book. And I know when you think about this, all these problems I'm having because I'm trying to do stuff cheap. The website is super cheap, and then I ran into all these problems because of how cheap it was, and i got to get the expensive one. Now, dealing with the page layout program, I'm using the cheap one. And look at where that wound up. What a disaster. So now I, I may have to use the expensive one next time I make the book, which may not be for a few years. <coughs> the book, as it, I love, I love the current book. It is just absolutely amazing, and you know, it can stay as it is for a few years, uh, you know, before it needs to be updated. And then, like I said, I, you know, have to, then I have to go to the expensive one. <coughs> oh, <coughs> just so much work formatting it. And I got to ref. I know reformat it. I know it doesn't sound, it does, doesn't make any sense that these formats are so incompatible, but they are. They are just so incompatible and you have to fine tune everything. Yeah, anyway. I guess that's what, that's what happens when you go cheap. Going cheap. But the good news is, because the book is in two parts, the, the main part and then the extension, which is already in LibreOffice. It's so hard to say LibreOffice. LibreOffice. LibreOffice? How? LibreOffice? How? What? I don't know how to say it. Uh, anyway, that stuff's already in. LibreOffice, and uh, that'll need to be reformatted, and then now the book itself needs to go to LibreOffice, I suppose. It's already I have it in LibreOffice, but it's a complete shit show at the moment. Uh, I don't even know how it got so screwed up exporting as PDF, then converting to RT RTF, then converting to ODT. Oh my god. Ponderous, man. What was that thing they that they uh, little sign they have in some offices? It says like um, cheap, high quality, fast. Choose two. That's always a good one. Yeah, I found an instance of the office humor sign. Spelling it out, we offer three kinds of services: good, cheap, fast. But you can only pick two. Good and cheap won't be fast. Fast and good won't be cheap cheap and fast won't be good so there you go oh on another topic I was uh, the other night I was playing with the cats in the living room and I heard these noises out I didn't know if they were outside or upstairs it was hard to tell but finally I looked outside and saw a, a big raccoon had knocked over my garbage can and was trying to get it open. You know, it, it has like a it has a lid that clicks shut. But uh, one other time, raccoons, I didn't see them, but they had gotten to my garbage can. Um, apparently, I wasn't here, but <clears throat> my wife had some people over and they ordered duck wings to eat, like fried duck wings. 
and so the uh, the remnants of that were in the garbage. I must have smelled so good to the raccoon that they just somehow scrabbled open the uh, the garbage can, ripped open the garbage bag, and got those bones to gnaw on. <laughs> See, normally because we're vegan, there's probably not a lot a lot of good food garbage for animals in there. But uh, this case, man, I could barely see it. It was very dark out. I tried to use my phone's flashlight, but through the window, it didn't really work. Um, <clears throat> so I figured, what can I do? What can I do about the situation? If I go outside, if this is like critter's ra- rabbit, I'd be in big trouble. Uh, <coughs> and <coughs> the garbage can is outside, so... Not sure exactly what I can do other than going through the process of dragging it down the driveway and putting it in the garage and with, with that big old raccoon lurking in the, in the distance. So I, I just decided to, I mean, I did, I did go outside to try to get a better look at it, but I decided to just let it be. I'm like, listen, I don't know what to do at this point, I guess. Um, you know, maybe the raccoon won't be able to get in. I don't think there's a lot of good garbage, a lot of any food in there for the raccoon. Um, <clears throat> if it if it does wind up ripping open the bag, oh well, I'll spend five minutes cleaning it up, and that'll be the end of it. As opposed to potentially being attacked by some sort of monstrous rabid creature. So I just let it be. And the next morning, I went out. It it had not opened it up. It was knocked over, but it did not get in. Thank goodness, no mess. I remember there were some raccoons at my father's house. We used to, have to leave it food out for the cats, and as soon as it got dark, they would come over and just, like, eat the food. Even if you turned on the lights, they saw you through the window. They didn't care, right? Because one, one time I, I turned on the light, and there was a fox and two raccoons on the porch eating cat food. And um, the fox ran away immediately. The two raccoons couldn't care less. They just kept eating the food. It's wild. Very intelligent creatures, those raccoons. And I know they say people have them as pets, but it's, it's just weird. It's weird to me that, like, even if you raise a raccoon from, from being a baby, what are they called, a cub or a kitten? Or what's the, what's the word for a baby raccoon? I don't know. But um, it can, it'll never be a good pet. It's just weird that there's this centuries or millennia of domestication makes certain animals good pets, and other ones, they'll never be great pets. Yeah. I hear I hear some people have pet skunks. You know, they they take out the gland that produces the noxious fumes, and they have them as pets. But still, again, it's not a good pet. Apparently, uh, skunks will steal things from all over your house and and build a secret nest somewhere in your house. That's that's their instinct. If you, if you look at it in the context of morphic resonance, a theory that has not been proven, um, that. Cats can access the collective experience of all cats living with humans over the ages, and perhaps in the future as well. Who knows if this stuff is restricted by time. Um, That's why cats are able to get along with humans so well, because they're part of this network of right all cats that have been living with humans. And there's so much of it available, it's very rich and it's very sorted out. Like a, a raccoon or a skunk, they would have very little of that to go on. They're, that means they're not domesticated, right? They don't have the morphic uh, field of others of their kind to sort of draw on. 
for that experience. And of course, dogs obviously are also domesticated. And they say goats are as well. Goats have a domesticated uh, aspect to them. They've been living with humans for so long, but sometimes they're pets and sometimes they're slaughtered for food. That's a bit of a drag. Rabbits, I don't know. Oh, rabbits. Um, yeah, I don't. I just don't think that like an, the animals that really are good pets need to be a bit more intelligent. I think than the rodents. Just a theory, though. One one um, idea that you know I've been aware of for a long time is you know that the idea that. Um, each of us has to sort of uh, take all the seemingly random events in our lives and develop kind of a story. And, and we tell ourselves the story of our life. And it can be mostly truthful, but of course it can be embellished a bit, right? To make you feel better about yourself. But if it's too embellished, if it's too divergent from reality, then that starts to uh, manifest like personality disorders and stuff. But it's it just if you really step back and look at it, we're this life form living on this pla in this place, this planet, so to speak. And uh, we 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 can't just exist. We have to like create a story of ourselves. You see, you see what I'm saying? It's kind of like, and it's kind of subtle and it's kind of weird, but what set of circumstances leads to such a situation as terrifying and wonderful perhaps aspects of it are, it's very strange, right? And I know I'm just, I'm just really sort of scratching the surface of this, of this issue, but like I, f I find the story I'm telling myself, I'm trying to think like how I would even describe it. Um, I somehow have, uh, right, with this project, Ansa Radio, I've sort of created the um, foundation for actually creating this, doing this show. And I've been doing this show twice a week for such a long time now. But the story of it is kind of weirdly kind of um I got I'm sort of at a loss for words. It's it's a story of achieving a kind of um <laughs> hmm. <laughs> How do you say it? I think that it alright, so it started, you know, when I was a kid in the seventies and eighties and looking at the people in the media that I admired um, you know, it, it, it does seem that each person sort of has a, a, a range of uh, personality aspects. And what I always admired was, uh, you know, people that were creative, that created things, right? So the idea that you sort of are of worth due to your um, creative output, right? And, and, and different people have different stories, you know, sort of like some people are somatic, that they're like if like appearance and your looks and how good you look is part of really a big part. Like if you could make, if you do look good and you can get the right clothes and the right accessories and whatever, like, and you can look good, 
and people see you looking good, like that's one aspect of this type of thing of, right, something to do. It, it does seem like people mostly have to, they have an ideal of what it is to, again, what's the word? Not necessarily succeed, but to sort of move along in this world and find yourself, see yourself useful in your story. This is a very, this is a very, it's a difficult topic. <coughs> um, but I, I always kind of looked at it in terms of, you know, being creative and creative output and creative works. And then very much, I, I do feel like if I'm really looking at the story I'm telling myself, it is very much, I would say, my exposure to uh, media properties and characters and individuals, like in the 80s, mostly a very formative time because I, I entered the 80s at like, what, age 12? Yeah. And ended it at age 22. It was a very formative a time in your life. Is that right? Three? Seven, yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Or 13. I was 13 at the end because I was born in October. Yeah. No, 12 to 23. That's kind of the, yeah very formative time in your life. And, um, you know, the people I looked up to, I would say, uh, like a David Letterman would be like a very good example of the type of person I looked up to. Someone that had this TV show that was endlessly inventive, right? And he did, though he himself was not Generation X, his cynicism and sarcasm very much resonated with, with me being of Generation X. And uh, the idea that he... Like his show was the platform on which, the foundation on which he was able to do the thing, create something that in the moment achieved, and this is where it's hard to describe, like I've, I've used the term 80s cool guy as kind of a, as an, an archetype, but sort of achieving the um, the state of being, doing something creative that involves weirdness and randomness and intelligence and being acknowledged for that. And in that, there's a certain kind of substance that, again, I, I feel like I'm, I'm perceiving it in my mind, what I'm trying to say, but it's very hard to sort of put into words to sort of achieve that. Uh, it's It's a... <sighs> It feels like it's a substance or it's it's an activity or it's a thing that it's not one thing. It's a combination of things that you do and then you achieve this state. I guess you could call it like a state of being that you want to achieve, right? And it's never like permanent. It's always sort of in the moment. But if you can sort of get in that moment, right, it's sort of the thing you're looking for. And I know this kind of feels like, in a way, um, getting a fix, like a drug addict. You know, talking about getting a fix of their drug of choice and then being high on it, and then, you know, it only lasts for a little while. Is that this, this like, seeking out this kind of circumstance where you can do the thing and then get that circumstance and then be in that state for a certain time 
it's I'm sorry, this is very hard. It's very hard. I didn't realize how difficult a topic this would be to sort of describe. But it's sort of what drives you and part of the part of the uh um you know, the story you're telling yourself, which may or may not be completely uh sort of maybe for consonant with I like I like using that word in that context. Is it right to use consonant? I think so. Consonant with the reality of things, and I do believe that at some level, no one really knows what the reality is, right? A l- so much of, since each of us is interpreting the world around us and telling, also, t- telling ourselves stories about it, I know you might say, well, you're not being realistic. That's not what's really going on. But what is, is, there, is there anything really going on other than the stories we're telling ourselves? I mean, you might say, the physical physical reality biology is real but couldn't that all be in service to the story the physical realm the biological forms they're just it's not that we're making a story up about our perhaps disadvantaged state being individual biological beings it's that perhaps being individual biological beings is necessary for this particular story so maybe the story is is the thing. But I would say that, for me at least, the sense that uh, uh, what I'm what I'm doing, especially you know someone like David Letterman or Howard Stern, some of my great heroes in the past, and of course another hero of mine, Walt Disney. Um, I know it's very hard to separate the man from what the company has become now, which is certainly. The, na- the words Walt and Disney, when people hear it, they cringe and are in horror at what the company has become in many ways. There's many different aspects of what it's become that people are upset by. But the man himself, I think, uh, was a true inspiration to me in terms of he's this restless mind constantly creating, constantly coming up with new things. So the idea is that in in your pursuit of the fix, whatever it might be, that you're in the process of that, you're actually potentially creating something that is of interest, amusement, and and uh, to other people, right? As opposed to other types of addictive behaviors, perhaps that are just completely selfish, right? There's really not of any benefit to anyone else. And I don't doubt that m- the same uh, influences I had, you know, millions of people were. Uh, influenced by the same things I was influenced by and have this are telling themselves similar stories I think um, now of course one of the central questions is you know this is the is the media and how it, aff- it it so strongly and fundamentally affects people in the stories they tell themselves is it kind of random how it influences people or has it been tar- had been a targeted influence right you'd think that this is the most powerful tool or weapon in the world to uh, control people, is to influence the stories they tell themselves. And I know there was one perhaps not quite related theory, which was that, uh, for example, The Grateful Dead, a band that I absolutely love and was a very late coming to in life, um, there are theories that the uh, the kind of hedonistic 
lifestyle that uh, the deadheads adopted was deliberately concocted to create um, a subgroup of people, young people, that would never protest a war or protest much of anything. They were too stuck in their, their hedonistic uh, loops of their life. And that it was deliberately made that way, perhaps as an experiment. But the idea that uh, people who might otherwise achieve certain things can be made ineffective by um, altering the story they tell themselves about their own life and um, making them ineffective. And perhaps, right, what I'm taught, the influences I received, whereas I do feel if I can achieve that state, it is pleasurable. And I think I am clearly not reaching a large audience, but as some kind of audience and the audience in the future, which is certainly theoretically possible. Um, you know, I feel like I'm achieving something, but was this all just sort of part of a, just a big plan to kind of uh, neutralize the effectiveness of people actually making any difference in this world? Right. So while there's so much bad stuff going on in the world and people that care about it and want to change it, um, if you can get people into this hedonistic loop uh, whatever it is, you know, that they will be ineffective in changing it. Even those people that seem to be uh, theoretically addressing it are addressing it in the wrong ways or spending their energies in ways that they think they're doing something, but they really aren't. But I would take this to another meta level, which is that in this scenario, right, where... And, and and I mentioned um, Aldous Huxley and his talk about the ultimate revolution um, controlling a society through uh, uh, pleasure as, as opposed to threat of pain that at the first level it's kind of a uh, you can see it as kind of a, a sinister plot to um, control a society and, and take it in directions that are not in the best interests of the members of the society right but then if you were to look at it historically from a, from a point in the future, you could say, I wonder what it really, I understand these people were kind of being manipulated and made to uh, I- idealize uh, these uh, types of lifestyles that ultimately made them ineffective and affecting any real change. But what was it actually like day to day being these people? Like you might even look at some of these religious cults out there and, you know, what was it like day to day being in this cult, you know? If you were to examine it from a future perspective, you might say, well, there might be some value in certainly the situation seems to have been unjust in some levels and wrong at some levels. But if you were to just examine the day to day and what it felt like to be in that circumstance, there might be something of value there, right? So the idea is if you're looking back historically at these times in history, and you find these moments in history where there's a uh, something like this going on, these psyops, and mind games, uh, societal control methods, whatever you want to say, but that it has, whereas the specifics of it, like, for example, you know, another of those 60s music things, the Laurel Canyon scene theories that, you know, all of the, the, the emergence of the hippie subculture was 
concocted and arranged by the military industrial complex and uh but the music was really good anyway right like in the course of it being a cynical attempt to um enable endless warfare without too much resistance from the home country produced really great music right so that's what i'm sort of saying like like the byproduct of these things perhaps after the fact like you could look if if it was completely proven that a lot of the music in the 60s was uh part of some sort of plot or something but then the music is actually really good and the experience of people discovering the music and being kind of entranced by it and influenced by it, like the experience of being in that time is actually some, a separate thing of, of worth, of value, as opposed to the actual um, purpose of it all. Right? So you might say that in the far future, looking back at this time period, if the theories I'm talking about have any validity, you could say that, like, what was it like to be an adolescent in the 1980s and be influenced by these things that were assumed to be just random entertainment things that random creative people came up with, but were actually part of, like, some sort of concerted effort to control society in some way. But what was it like to be a, be in that time period? And then, um, right to construct a uh, a simulation of the past specifically to explore these time periods and what it was like to live in them and find that there's a certain experiential quality that is really quite valuable in the in the context of all the, in, in in the course of all this right Now, it doesn't have to mean that we're living in a simulation, though I, I do feel like... I, I feel... I don't know, but I, if, if I had to guess, I'd say there's a, more of a chance that this is a simulation that I'm experiencing right now than it's a quote-unquote real world. And what is a real world anyway? What, you know... I mean, would you say that what is the real world? Like, if we're living in a simulation within a simulation within a simulation at all, et cetera, whatever ad hoc no uh like at the end of the road there must be some a real world that all the simulators are existing in or would there what does there even need to be a real world i don't know um and perhaps this thought that i'm having right now that feeling that i'm this world i'm in is a simulation it's a you know it's not real that might be another aspect of conditioning that there's been subtle clues and hints over the years to try to get people to come to this conclusion whereas no the world is really real but if people think it's a simulation they'll be less likely to care about changing it for the better perhaps against the wishes of the powers that be yeah (laughs) what the hell but what would you call like I, I would say that I've been touching on this theme of a system that's created for one purpose, but that the byproducts of that system unexpectedly have value, right? So I think that my theory of human origins not just my theory, but other people's theory you know, the theory is that uh 
just to recap it is that uh, you know and this is just a theory <clears throat> I don't believe it it's just a theory that um, you know the human race as we know it was created as a genetic experiment by a race of higher beings known by to some as Anunnaki the humans were created to be workers in deep dimensions that could reproduce quickly, had a very short lifespan, and um, though they did have that Anunnaki heritage, so they had those higher functions in their mind that were mostly suppressed, but not completely suppressed. But they were mostly meant to work and reproduce, right, and follow orders. But that when it was discovered, this project was discovered by the larger uh, society of Anunnaki, it was denounced it was considered a horror that these genetically uh, diminished offshoots of the Anunnaki race were created, that they should all be eradicated and the whole thing should be just be forgotten about, but that some Anunnaki that were able to project their minds into humans and live as humans and perhaps even suppress their knowledge of their true identity found that living as humans, the experiential quality of it was uh, had a value, a unique value, and that's why they wanted to preserve humans and not destroy them all. And this story is told in many ancient cultures, the Noah's Ark and um, Sumerian, uh, even older Sumerian uh, mythologies, talking about um, humans being created in secret, especially the Sumerians, the decision made to destroy them, and then some uh, some of them wanted to save them, and the Ark story, you know, so again, something like kind of a bad thing that has produced a, a good side effect or a good, um, what's there, not a side effect, but a uh, um, byproduct, right? A byproduct of the process actually had value, right? Whereas the original intent was to uh, create a, ra a, a worker race of slaves to, to work in lower dimensions, that there actually was almost accidentally something of value created in the process. And it's kind of a similar idea to talking about these various theoretical psychological operations and mind control and uh, ruling through pleasure rather than threat of pain. And The byproduct of those is produces something valuable. And that sort of implies an aesthetic class of Anunnaki that's able, that, that feels ex the experiential is the most valuable substance, experience is the most valuable substance, and is able to recognize it when they see it. Right? And now, going back to the idea that the, exper the experience is all, that is, the story is everything. There is no reality. There is nothing but the experience. Right, the experience is the origin of everything, and everything else just exists to serve the experience. So you might say that in these cases, a richer, more complex experience requires deeper stories with sinister cabals and weird experiments and all this other stuff. But meanwhile, it's all in service to making a better story the existence of these 
things. And to look around the world today and what are the stories we're being told. I'm sure at any point in history, the past hundred years, you would there would be a different set of things. But, you know, the war in Ukraine, the war in Israel, you know, the economic problems, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, like all these, you know, sort of it seems like everything is going crazy and all this stuff. But is all this negativity just sort of a, the exhaust of a, the engine of, of, of the narrative? Hey, 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 that sounds good. The toxic fumes of the machine. Yeah. I don't know. But it just occurred to me, these ideas. Anyway. <laughs> With that, I'd like to say... Thank you so much for patching in to this episode of The Overnightscape. It is much appreciated. I am your host, Frank Edward Nora, here in Nutley, New Jersey, on uh, February 20th, uh, Tuesday, February 20th, 2024. And, of course, we're here on OnSug Radio, uh, broadcasting from inside the book. And I've been talking about the files of the book, but it doesn't really matter. The book exists, the new edition of the book. Uh and as I said, the, the goal is to get all the files and all the layouts and all the text and everything inside this one object that can be updated. And <coughs> I'm sure AI will help a lot. But anyway, for now, you can go to onsug.com, O-N-S-U-G.com, and uh, listen to <coughs> all, the latest <coughs> all the latest shows. Check out the archive with uh, over 14,000 hours of content, almost 11 or was it 12,000 uh, individual episodes of shows? It's all free and preserved, ideally forever. We're a non-commercial project with a unique take on things, a unique style. There's really nothing else like OnSug Radio. Uh, you can buy the book. If you go to OnSug.com, you'll see a picture of the book. Click on it. You can buy it from Amazon. It's print-on-demand. I set it at the lowest price possible. I make no money on it, as this is a non this is a non-commercial project, which I know is almost unheard of these days. And it wasn't my original plan, but it's just sort of happened that way. Um, your voice can be in this in this archive because uh, we do want to preserve this for the near and the far future. So it's a stated goal of this project for these files and these voices, mine included, and other people's voices to be heard and preserved to be heard into the farther future. Um and I'm trying to do everything I can uh, while I'm still here in this particular form to prepare the message in a bottle to be set adrift on the, on the, on the, uh, the blissful sea of uh, time. Set adrift on memories, bliss. Remember that? Remember PM Dawn? That was a good band. I think they're from Jersey, right? They, uh, they sampled, uh, I know this much is true. Remember Spandau Ballet? Yeah. Oh, and that, I love that song. I, I think it's their first album of the of the cross of the something and of the something. Reality used to be a friend of mine. Reality used to be a friend of mine. Please don't ask me because I don't know why. But reality used to be a friend of mine. Wow, that kind of feels like it dovetails with this what I was just talking about. Reality used to be a friend of mine. I used to be friends with reality. And then I realized it was all fake and only created to serve the story. I don't think they went that far. Anyway, if you'd like your voice to be in this archive, there's a very easy way to do it. It is Overnight Escape Central, a show that's been going 
now in its 14th year, now hosted by Dave in Kentucky, monthly, and you can uh, uh, you can get your submission in. All you got to do is record some audio on it on this topic. There's three topics. You can choose one, two, or all three. And please do consider uh, submitting. This one is uh, there's a lot you can talk about on this topic. Let me go to the website, onsug.com. Thankfully, is is supposedly working at this point. Uh, do, do, do. Okay, here it is. Sorry. I want to get the wording right. <laughs> oh, look, Betty Page. Yeah. Shambles put out a show called... Uh, Bumper chain cosmic number forty two phylum and there's a picture of Betty Page with her bangs on as the show art. Okay, so what we have here is uh the next overnight escape central. I know it's gonna be on the deadline is gonna be March tenth of twenty twenty four. You can send it to Dave, I'll give you his email address. And the topics are morning coffee, evening drinks, and other minor vices. So those little pleasures we take. I may have some evening drinks after this. We'll see. Um, I already had my morning coffee. Um, yeah, so you, you can record your audio and email it to DaveKY at mail.com. D-A-V-E-K-Y at M-A-I-L dot com. And uh, Dave will uh, put it on the show. It doesn't There's no length. You can record for five minutes. You can record longer, whatever you want. Um, we'd love to hear from you. You don't know how much we'd love to hear from you. If, if you're sitting, if you're sitting on the fence, you're like, oh, maybe I'll do it. Please, please do it. We would love to hear from you. Uh, and uh, believe me, if if you're worried about how you're going to sound, listen, I guarantee you're going to sound a heck of a lot better than you think you're going to sound. Just record it on your phone and send it in. If you don't have a, like a microphone or a setup or something, we would love to hear from you. Thank you. Let me see that song, Reality Used to Be a Friend of Mine. Hold on a second. Yeah, here's here's the lyrics. Reality used to be a friend of mine. Maybe why is the question that's on your mind, but reality used to be a friend of mine. I was insane and the picture was crazy, so the relevance here seems a bit hazy. But I tried to explain this in the simplest terms. She let the cross burn, and it was my turn to say, The roses are red, the violets are blue. And things are going to stay that way, too. And I was the nut to believe all of this. I figured life would just hand me bliss. Well, if it's a bliss you're looking for, Prince... Prince B, was that his name? Prince B or something? Anyway, if it's if it's uh, that sort of pleasures you're looking for, bliss of the random cosmic sort, you've come to the right place because right here is the gateway to this. The other side. The evil farm. Did you hear about what's going on on the farm? This is like, like, I heard screams and shit, like killing people. Is there this big snake god rises out of the ground and like chops You bullshit me? No, no. Serious. Serious. You think we're bullshitting you? Well, all right, listen. I think you have nothing better else to do than take pictures of me. Alright, here, you talk about the evil farm. Hey, I don't know what to say about it. Make something up. I'm making it. Oh, I got a cousin no, that went up to the evil, evil farm. Bro. And, and he said that he went up there and there was this ghost cow. 
and it came over and started fucking him up the ass. I wouldn't let him leave. So he finally left. Hey, baby, wanna make some movies? I know those old guys in the streets, man. They're talking about how there's like some kind of like they found an arm back behind this fucking factory, and that they said they saw a gleam from like a sword coming off the top of the castle one night. There's all these. There's all these. Yo, bro. Did you come down with that fucking laughter, man? I don't know. Man, this doesn't look. We should go to that place where we heard that scream tonight. That would be sick. <coughs> Say hi. Hey, what the fuck is up? We're at the evil farm. We're scared shit. Jim just died. Jim's dead. Jim's dead. Holy shit. No! <laughs> 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 it's Aria Martinsville. We're talking yeah, about the evil farm and other, other farms. See, these people here are, so, shall we say, victims of the evil farm. And, and joints, as we used to say, joints. Fuck around it! People are gonna die! They're gonna die! You're all gonna fucking die!
walking to the Taj Mahal in the Coca-Cola Pavilion at the New York World's Fair. This is part of a tour around the world through the eyes of Coca-Cola. We're now standing in front of the fountains at the Taj Mahal. In the background, you can hear the music of the lute and the water of the fountains as they give a very vivid and beautiful descriptive look at the picturesque Taj Mahal in India at the Coca-Cola Pavilion. Now as we walk on further, we go through an alleyway which brings us to Switzerland. As a matter of fact, it's to the Bavarian Alps, where we now go into a ski lodge in the Bavarian Alps. You can look out of the windows here and see the Alps in the background with the snow on them, all unbelievably realistically made so that it is just as though you were there. In the background now you can hear the singers in here singing their songs, uh, Bavarian folk songs, typical of what you might find in a ski lodge. And now we continue on our tour through the Coca-Cola Pavilion. The idea of this exhibit is to show the people at the World's Fair visiting this exhibit the many areas in which the products of the Coca-Cola Bottling Company are found. We're now walking into Angkor Wat, built in the 12th century AD, which is in Cambodia, where we can see some ancient Cambodian relics. In the background, you can hear the jungle sounds. As we look out we can see fireflies in the trees in this jungle. We're walking underneath an ancient replica of an archway in a very beautiful descriptive and colorful replica of an actual forest in Cambodia. Of course all of this is just one of the sections in the Coca-Cola Pavilion's tour of the world. In the background now you can hear the waterfall, again and still in the jungle, and the animal sounds, the birds and the trees. The pavilion is known for having a lot of very minute details that you have to be very careful to watch, such as the frogs in the forest here who actually croak and you can see them breathing. And as we continue walking through the pavilion, the smells change. Each area has its own smell, and now we're standing on the deck of a ship supposedly docked out of Rio de Janeiro. You can hear the music in the background from the deck. You can see people through the windows, the silhouettes of them dancing. Off in the distance, you can hear the boats and the seagulls in the water in the harbor at Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Here even the deck of the ship rocks and you can feel the motors underneath you as they vibrate. And then at the final section of the Coca-Cola exhibit is a gallery of art from Atlanta, Georgia, which of course is the home of the Coca-Cola Bottling Company.
This is coffee. Our story begins here, with coffee. Its flavor caught in the closed fist of the bean, freed then by the grinding mills in an endless cascade, brewed into a beverage that is consumed in the hundreds of millions of cupfuls each day. In this beverage that has become so much a part of our lives, there is a background, a tradition that reaches deeply into the culture of many lands. It's beginning under warm tropical sun. The care and attention to which it is treated during its journey from tree to cup. processes it must undergo are all devoted to creating good coffee with its secrets of aroma and body and taste to which the talents of millions of men are devoted during their lifetime to which tradition rich in the lore of centuries and faraway places sets its fine hand to bring these three elements into precise flavor the tastes of fine coffee extend over a wide range. But for each palate, there is a flavor that is just right. Around the world, they drink this beverage in its many exotic forms. A dream of Paris, expressed in cafe au lait, a continental favorite, half coffee and half hot milk. Canals of Venice and the romance of cappuccino, like cafe au lait, but topped with whipped cream and a sprinkle of grated orange peel. The music of old Vienna in a cup. Viennese coffee, often spiced, but always with a drift of whipped cream. mystery of Istanbul and the eastern lands in Turkish coffee, foam hiding the rich sweet brew. The vigor of Latin American coffees, dark and zesty, served black in tiny cups with plenty of sugar. But always it is coffee. How then do we make the perfect cup of coffee to our taste? Success lies in a single word, care. Three simple ingredients go into the brewing process. Water, coffee, time. Care will produce a perfect result every time. The beginning is the coffee pot, and there are as many varieties and types as taste will dictate. Yet, each is intended to do the same thing in a different way, to produce perfection in a coffee cup.
make a good cup of coffee, your coffee maker must be clean, free from all remembrances of that last pot of coffee, ready to begin its work anew, fresh and really clean. Water. Into a hundred thousand pots an hour, water flows in the coffee making process. Water. Too much or too little? Boiled first or later or not at all? For how long? And yet, there is only one correct way. Water, the first element, carefully measured, clean and cold. Three quarters of a measuring cup for each cup of coffee, then brought to a full boil. Coffee, fresh. And again questions. What grind? Percolator, drip, or fine? How much? Coffee, the second element. Your favorite blend, the proper grind for your coffee maker, one level CBI measure per cup. This, found in many homes, is the same as this, a Coffee Brewing Institute approved measure. So whether you use one or the other, the measurement will be the same and it will be accurate. now passes over the coffee and the brewing process begins. The flame is lowered and, well, watch. The third element is time and it too must be measured accurately. The minutes counted. The flavor will emerge as the process continues. The taste of coffee heightens and increases until all that is good has been extracted. In this method of brewing, percolator, six to eight minutes over gentle heat, and then the liquid is coffee. From these grounds, there remains nothing more to gain but bitterness. No amount of cooking can extract another ounce of good taste, not another iota of good flavor. In the drip method, the coffee is measured and placed in the pot. The water, carefully pre-measured and brought to a full boil, is poured, still boiling, over the coffee. The time? It should take only four to six minutes. In the vacuum method, 
The coffee is carefully measured into the top bowl. The water is brought to a full boil before the brewing process is allowed to begin. Not more than three minutes after the water and coffee are in contact. Stir gently during the brewing process and lower the heat. That's all there is. Like all good secrets, its simplicity is its magic. of coffee has now been captured in a cup. It has substance, a body to go with its aroma and its taste. When prepared this way, it will be perfect every time. Three magic ingredients. Water, fresh and carefully measured. the proper grind, and carefully measured. Time, carefully measured. A simple recipe for perfect coffee. Perfect coffee, sending its glow into our lives around the clock. It helps us start the day with warmth and vigor. and spur to the morning's work. It provides the essential part of our pause at noon, indispensable during that unhurried hour in a world that often forgets to stop. In the romance of evening, when young dreams glow softly, coffee is always a perfect companion. And after dinner, it is at home in any setting when good taste is important. In the end, it remains a simple thing, easy to attain, well-made and well-enjoyed. A good cup of good coffee.
game. It's Epoch Man. Slices by Midway and Coleco. Now he can play at home or anywhere else. Epoch Man is not just a game. It's a digital clock with a musical alarm. A day and date calendar. A stopwatch. So look for Epoch Man. Arcade action that fits in your pocket from Epoch.